the fine old english gentleman this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit librivox.org recording by martin geeson charles dickens two hundredth anniversary collection volume two the fine old english gentleman new version to be said or sung at all conservative dinners <coughs> i'll sing you a new ballad and i'll warrant it first rate of the days of that old gentleman who had that old estate when they spent the public money at a bountiful old rate on every mistress pimp and scamp at every noble gate in the fine old english tory times soon may they come again the good old laws were garnished well with gibbets whips and chains with fine old english penalties and fine old english pains with rebel heads and seas of blood once hot in rebel veins for all these things were requisite to guard the rich old gains of the fine old english tory times soon may they come again this brave old code like argus had a hundred watchful eyes and every english peasant had his good old english spies to tempt his starving discontent with fine old english lies then call the good old yeomanry to stop his peevish cries in the fine old english tory times soon may they come again good old times for cutting throats that cried out in their need the good old times for hunting men who held their father's creed the good old times when william pitt as all good men agreed came down direct from paradise at more than railroad speed oh the fine old english tory times when will they come again in those rare days the press was seldom known to snarl or bark but sweetly sang of men in power like any tuneful lark grave judges too to all their evil deeds were in the dark and not a man in twenty score knew how to make his mark oh the fine old english tory times soon may they come again those were the days for taxes and for wars infernal din for scarcity of bread that fine old dowagers might win for shutting men of letters up through iron bars to grin because they didn't think the prince was altogether thin in the fine old english tory times soon may they come again oh, but tolerance though slow in flight is strong-winged in the main that night must come on these fine days in course of time was plain 
the pure old spirit struggled but its struggles were in vain a nation's grip was on it and it died in choking pain with the fine old english tory days all of the olden time the bright old day now dawns again the cry runs through the land in england there shall be dear bread in ireland sword and brand and poverty and ignorance shall swell the rich and grand so rally round the rulers with the gentle iron hand of the fine old english tory days hail to the coming time end of the fine old english gentleman another day is here and you're ready for it what to wear check breakfast lunch and dinner check planning for what's next and how to save for it that's where bank of america can help for your financial to-dos bank of america has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals get started at one of our local financial centers or 24 7 in our mobile banking app Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDSE. Lying awake. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jason Mills. Charles Dickens' 200th Anniversary Collection, Volume 2. Lying awake. By Charles Dickens. My uncle lay with his eyes half closed, and his nightcap drawn almost down to his nose. His fancy was already wandering, and began to mingle up the present scene with the crater of Vesuvius, the French opera, the Colosseum at Rome, Dolly's chop house in London, and all the farrago of noted places with which the brain of a traveller is crammed. In a word, he was just falling asleep. Thus that delightful writer, Washington Irving, in his Tales of a Traveller. But it happened to me the other night to be lying, not with my eyes half-closed, but with my eyes wide open, not with my nightcap drawn almost down to my nose, for on sanitary principles I never wear a nightcap, but with my hair pitchforked and tousled all over the pillow, not just falling asleep by any means, but glaringly, persistently, and obstinately broad awake, Perhaps, with no scientific intention or invention, I was illustrating the theory of the duality of the brain. Perhaps one part of my brain, being wakeful, sat up to watch the other part, which was sleepy. Be that as it may, something in me was as desirous to go to sleep as it possibly could be, but something else in me would not go to sleep, and was as obstinate as George the Third. Thinking of George the Third for I devote this paper to my train of thoughts as I lay awake, most people lying awake sometimes, and having some interest in the subject, put me in mind of Benjamin Franklin, and so Benjamin Franklin's paper on the art of procuring pleasant dreams, which would seem necessarily to include the art of going to sleep, came into my head. Now, as I often used to read that paper when I was a very small boy, and as I recollect everything I read then as perfectly as I forget everything I read now, I quoted, Get out of bed, 
Beat up and turn your pillow. Shake the bedclothes well with at least twenty shakes, then throw the bed open and leave it to cool. In the meanwhile, continuing undressed, walk about your chamber. When you begin to feel the cold air unpleasant, then return to your bed, and you will soon fall asleep, and your sleep will be sweet and pleasant. Not a bit of it. I performed the whole ceremony, and if it were possible for me to be more saucer-eyed than I was before, that was the only result that came of it. Except Niagara. The two quotations from Washington Irving and Benjamin Franklin may have put it in my head by an American association of ideas, but there I was, and the horseshoe fall was thundering and tumbling in my eyes and ears, and the very rainbows that I left upon the spray when I really did last look upon it were beautiful to see. The night-light being quite as plain, however, and sleep seeming to be many thousand miles further off than Niagara, I made up my mind to think a little about sleep, which I no sooner did than I whirled off in spite of myself to Drury Lane Theatre, and there saw a great actor and dear friend of mine, whom I had been thinking of in the day, playing Macbeth, and heard him apostrophizing the death of each day's life, as I have heard him many a time in the days that are gone. But sleep! I will think about sleep. I am determined to think, this is the way I went on, about sleep. I must hold the word sleep tight and fast, or I shall be off at a tangent in half a second. I feel myself unaccountably straying already into Clare Market. Sleep! It would be curious, as illustrating the equality of sleep, to inquire how many of its phenomena are common to all classes, to all degrees of wealth and poverty, to every grade of education and ignorance. Here, for example, is Her Majesty Queen Victoria in her palace, this present blessed night, and here is winking Charlie, a sturdy vagrant, in one of Her Majesty's jails. Her Majesty has fallen many thousands of times from that same tower which I claim a right to tumble off now and then. So has winking Charlie. Her Majesty in her sleep has opened or prorogued Parliament, or has held a drawing-room, attired in some very scanty dress, the deficiencies and improprieties of which have caused her great uneasiness. I, in my degree, have suffered unspeakable agitation of mind from taking the chair at a public dinner at the London Tavern in my night-clothes, which not all the courtesy of my kind friend and host Mr. Bath could persuade me were quite adapted to the occasion. Winking Charlie has been repeatedly tried in a worse condition. Her Majesty is no stranger to a vault or firmament of a sort of floor-cloth, with an indistinct pattern distantly resembling eyes, which occasionally obtrudes itself on her repose. Neither am I. Neither is Winking Charlie. It is quite common to all three of us to skim along with airy strides a little above the ground, also to hold, with the deepest interest, dialogues with various people, all represented by ourselves, and to be at our wit's end to know what they are going to tell us, and to be indescribably astonished by the secrets they disclose. It is probable that we have all three committed murders and hidden bodies. It is pretty certain that we have all desperately wanted to cry out and have had no voice, that we have all gone to the play and not been able to get in, that we have all dreamed much more of our youth than of our later lives, that—I have lost it, the thread's broken. And up I go, I lying here with the nightlight before me, up I go, for no reason on earth that I can find out and drawn by no links that are visible to me, up the great St. Bernard. I have lived in Switzerland, and rambled among the mountains, but why I should go there now, and why up the great St. Bernard in preference to any other mountain, I have no idea, 
as I lie here, broad awake, and with every sense so sharpened that I can distinctly hear distant noises inaudible to me at another time, I make that journey, as I really did, on the same summer day, with the same happy party. Ah, too since dead, I grieve to think. And there is the same track, with the same black wooden arms to point the way, and there are the same storm refuges here and there, and there is the same snow falling at the top, and there are the same frosty mists, and there is the same intensely cold convent, with its menagerie smell, and the same breed of dogs fast dying out, and the same breed of jolly young monks, whom I mourn to know as humbugs, and the same convent parlour with its piano, and the sitting round the fire, and the same supper, and the same lone night in a cell, and the same bright fresh morning, when going out into the highly rarefied air was like a plunge into an icy bath. Now, see here what comes along, and why does this thing stalk into my mind on the top of a Swiss mountain? It is a figure that I once saw, just after dark, choked upon a door in a little back lane near a country church, my first church. How young a child I may have been at the time I don't know, but it horrified me so intensely, in connection with the churchyard, I suppose, for it smokes a pipe, and has a big hat with each of its ears sticking out in a horizontal line under the brim, and is not in itself more oppressive than a mouth from ear to ear, a pair of goggle eyes, and hands like two bunches of carrots, five in each, can make it. That it is still vaguely alarming to me to recall, as I have often done before, lying awake, the running home, the looking behind, the horror of its following me. Though whether disconnected from the door, or door and all, I can't say, and perhaps never could. It lays a disagreeable train. I must resolve to think of something on the voluntary principle. The balloon ascents of this last season. They will do to think about while I lie awake, as well as anything else. I must hold them tight, though, for I feel them sliding away, and in their stead are the Mannings, husband and wife, hanging on the top of Horsemonger Lane Jail in connection with which dismal spectacle I recall this curious fantasy of the mind, that, having beheld that execution, and having left those two forms dangling on the top of the entrance gateway, the man's a limp loose suit of clothes, as if the man had gone out of them, the woman's a fine shape, so elaborately corseted and artfully dressed, that it was quite unchanged in its trim appearance as it slowly swung from side to side, I never could, by my uttermost efforts, for some weeks, present the outside of that prison to myself, which the terrible impression I had received continually obliged me to do, without presenting it with the two figures still hanging in the morning air, until, strolling past the gloomy place one night, when the street was deserted and quiet, and actually seeing that the bodies were not there, my fancy was persuaded, as it were, to take them down, and bury them within the precincts of the jail, where they have lain ever since. The balloon ascents of last season, let me reckon them up. There were the horse, the bull, the parachute, and the tumbler hanging on, chiefly by his toes, I believe, below the car. Very wrong, indeed, and decidedly to be stopped. But, in connection with these and similar dangerous exhibitions, it strikes me that that portion of the public whom they entertain is unjustly reproached. Their pleasure is in the difficulty overcome. They are a public of great faith, and are quite confident that the gentleman will not fall off the horse, or the lady off the bull, or out of the parachute, and that the tumbler has a firm hold with his toes. They do not go to see the adventurer vanquished, but triumphant. There is no parallel in public combats between men and beasts, 
because nobody can answer for the particular beast, unless it were always the same beast, in which case it would be a mere stage show, which the same public would go in the same state of mind to see, entirely believing in the brute being beforehand safely subdued by the man. That they are not accustomed to calculate hazards and dangers with any nicety, we may know from their rash exposure of themselves, in overcrowded steamboats, and unsafe conveyances, and places of all kinds. And I cannot help thinking that instead of railing, and attributing savage motives to a people naturally well disposed and humane, it is better to teach them, and lead them argumentatively and reasonably, for they are very reasonable, if you will discuss a matter with them, to more considerate and wise conclusions. This is a disagreeable intrusion. Here is a man with his throat cut, dashing towards me as I lie awake. A recollection of an old story of a kinsman of mine, who, going home one foggy night to Hampstead, when London was much smaller, and the road lonesome, suddenly encountered such a figure rushing past him, and presently two keepers from a madhouse in pursuit. A very unpleasant creature indeed, to come into my mind unbidden, as I lie awake. The balloon ascents of last season. I must return to the balloons. Why did the bleeding man start out of them? Never mind. If I inquire, he will be back again. The balloons. This particular public have inherently a great pleasure in the contemplation of physical difficulties overcome, mainly, as I take it, because the lives of a large majority of them are exceedingly monotonous and real, and further, are a struggle against continual difficulties, and further still, because anything in the form of accidental injury, or any kind of illness or disability, is so very serious in their own sphere. I will explain this seeming paradox of mine. Take the case of a Christmas pantomime. Surely nobody supposes that the young mother in the pit, who falls into fits of laughter when the baby is boiled or sat upon, would be at all diverted by such an occurrence off the stage. Nor is the decent workman in the gallery, who is transported beyond the ignorant present by the delight with which he sees a stout gentleman pushed out of a two-pair-of-stairs window, to be slandered by the suspicion that he will be in the least entertained by such a spectacle in any street in London, Paris, or New York. It always appears to me that the secret of this enjoyment lies in the temporary superiority to the common hazards and mischances of life, in seeing casualties attended when they really occur with bodily and mental suffering, tears, and poverty, happen through a very rough sort of poetry, without the least harm being done to any one, the pretense of distress in a pantomime being so broadly humorous as to be no pretense at all. Much as in the comic fiction I can understand the mother with a very vulnerable baby at home, greatly relishing the invulnerable baby on the stage, so in the Cremorne reality I can understand the mason, who is always liable to fall off a scaffold in his working jacket, and to be carried to the hospital, having an infinite admiration of the radiant personage in spangles who goes into the clouds upon a bull, or upside down, and who, he takes it for granted, not reflecting upon the thing, has by uncommon skill and dexterity conquered such mischances as those to which he and his acquaintance are continually exposed. I wish the morgue in Paris would not come here as I lie awake, with its ghastly beds, and the swollen saturated clothes hanging up, and the water dripping, dripping all day long, upon that other swollen, saturated something in the corner, like a heap of crushed, over-ripe figs that I have seen in Italy. And this detestable morgue comes back again at the head of a procession of forgotten ghost stories. This will never do. I must think of something else as I lie awake, or, like that sagacious animal in the United States, who recognised the colonel who was such a dead shot, I am a gone coon. What shall I think of? The late brutal assaults, 
very good subject, the late brutal assaults. Though whether, supposing I should see, here before me as I lie awake, the awful phantom described in one of those ghost stories, who, with a headdress of shroud, was always seen looking in through a certain glass door at a certain dead hour, whether in such a case it would be the least consolation to me to know on philosophical grounds that it was merely my imagination, is a question I can't help asking myself, by the way. THE LATE BRUTAL ASSAULTS I strongly question the expediency of advocating the revival of whipping for those crimes. It is a natural and generous impulse to be indignant at the perpetration of inconceivable brutality, but I doubt the whipping panacea gravely. Not in the least regard or pity for the criminal, whom I hold in far lower estimation than a mad wolf, but in consideration for the general tone and feeling, which is very much improved since the whipping times. It is bad for a people to be familiarised with such punishments. When the whip went out of Bridewell, and ceased to be flourished at the cart's tail and at the whipping-post, it began to fade out of madhouses, and workhouses, and schools and families, and to give place to a better system everywhere than cruel driving. It would be hasty, because a few brutes may be inadequately punished, to revive, in any aspect, what, in so many aspects, society is hardly yet happily rid of. The whip is a very contagious kind of thing, and difficult to confine within one set of bounds. Utterly abolish punishment by fine, a barbarous device, quite as much out of date as wager by battle, but particularly connected in the vulgar mind with this class of offence, at least quadruple the term of imprisonment for aggravated assaults, and above all let us, in such cases, have no pet prisoning, vain glorifying, strong soup and roasted meats, but hard work, and one unchanging and uncompromising dietary of bread and water, well or ill, and we shall do much better than by going down into the dark to grope for the whip among the rusty fragments of the rack and the branding iron and the chains and gibbet from the public roads and the weights that pressed men to death in the cells of Newgate. I had proceeded thus far, when I found I had been lying awake so long that the very dead began to wake too, and to crowd into my thoughts most sorrowfully. Therefore I resolved to lie awake no more, but to get up and go out for a night walk, which resolution was an acceptable relief to me, as I dare say it may prove now to a great many more. End of Lying Awake Recording by Jason Mills A Child's Dream of a Star From Reprinted Pieces This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lynn Prechar Charles Dickens' 200th Anniversary Collection, Volume 2, A Child's Dream of a Star, by Charles Dickens. There once was a child, and he strolled about a good deal and thought a number of things. He had a sister, who was a child too, and his constant companion. These two used to wonder all day long. They wondered at the beauty of the flowers, they wondered at the height and blueness of the sky, they wondered at the depth of the bright water, they wondered at the goodness and the power of God who made the lovely world. They used to say to one another sometimes, Supposing all the children upon earth were to die, would the flowers and the water and the sky be sorry? 
they believed they would be sorry, for, said they, the buds are the children of the flowers, and the little playful streams that gamble down to the hillsides are the children of the water, and the smallest bright specks playing at hide-and-seek in the sky all night must surely be the children of the stars, and they would all be grieved to see their playmates, the children of men, no more. There was one clear shining star that used to come out in the sky before the rest, near the church spire above the graves. It was larger and more beautiful, they thought, than all the others, and every night they watched for it, standing hand in hand at the window. Whoever saw it first cried out, I see the star! And often they cried out both together, knowing so well when it would rise and where. So they grew to be such friends with it, that before lying down in their beds, they always looked out once again to bid a good night, and when they were turning round to sleep, they used to say, God bless the star. But when she was still very young, oh, very, very young, the sister drooped, and came to be so weak that she could no longer stand in the window at night. And then the child looked sadly out by himself, and when he saw the star, turned round and said to the patient pale face on the bed, I see the star! And then a smile would come upon the face, and a little weak voice used to say, God bless my brother and the star. And so the time came all too soon, when the child looked out alone, and when there was no face on the bed, and when there was a little grave among the graves, not there before, and when the star made long rays down towards him, as he saw it through his tears. Now these rays were so bright, and they seemed to make such a shining way from earth to heaven, that when the child went to his solitary bed, he dreamed about the star, and dreamed that lying where he was, he saw a train of people taken up that sparkling road by angels, and the star, opening, showed him a great world of light, where many more such angels waited to receive them. All these angels who were waiting turned their beaming eyes upon the people who were carried up into the star, and some came out from the long rows in which they stood, and fell upon the people's necks, and kissed them tenderly, and went away with them down avenues of light, and were so happy in their company that lying in his bed he wept for joy. But there were many angels who did not go with them, and among them one he knew. The patient face that once had lain upon the bed was glorified and radiant, but his heart found out his sister among all the host. His sister's angel lingered near the entrance of the star, and said to the leader among those who had brought the people thither, Is my brother come? And he said, No. She was turning hopefully away when the child stretched out his arms and cried, Oh, sister, I am here. Take me. And then she turned her beaming eyes upon him, and it was night, and the star was shining into the room, making long rays down towards him as he saw it through his tears. From that hour forth, the child looked out upon the star as on the home he was to go. When his time should come, and he thought that he did not belong to the earth alone, but to the star too, because of his sister's angel gone before. There was a baby born to be brother to the child, and while he was so little that he never yet had spoken word, he stretched his tiny form out on his bed and died.
again the child dreamed of the open star and of the company of angels and the train of people and the rows of angels with their beaming eyes all turned upon those people's faces said his sister's angel to the leader is my brother come and he said not that one but another as the child beheld his brother's angel in her arms he cried oh sister i am here take me and she turned and smiled upon him and the star was shining he grew to be a young man and was busy at his books when an old servant came to him and said thy mother is no more i bring her blessing on her darling son again at night he saw the star and all that former company said his sister's angel to the leader is my brother come and he said thy mother a mighty cry of joy went forth through all the star because the mother was reunited to her two children and he stretched out his arms and cried oh mother sister and brother i am here take me and they answered him not yet and the star was shining he grew to be a man whose hair was turning gray and he was sitting in his chair by the fireside heavy with grief and with his face bedewed with tears when the star opened once again said his sister's angel to the leader is my brother come and he said nay but his maiden daughter and the man who had been the child saw his daughter newly lost to him a celestial creature among those three and he said my daughter's head is on my sister's bosom and her arm is around my mother's neck and at her feet there is the baby of old time and i can bear the parting from her god be praised and the star was shining thus the child came to be an old man and his once smooth face was wrinkled and his steps were slow and feeble and his back was bent and one night as he lay upon his bed his children standing round he cried as he had cried so long ago i see the star they whispered one another he is dying and he said i am my age is falling from me like a garment and i move towards the star as a child and oh my father now i thank thee that it has so often opened to receive those dear ones who await me and the star was shining and it shines upon his grave end of a child's dream of a star from reprinted pieces recording by lynn prachar Morrow, Illinois. Nobody's Story. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Noel Badrian. Charles Dickens, 200th Anniversary Collection, Volume 2. Nobody's Story by Charles Dickens He lived on the bank of a mighty river, broad and deep, which was always silently rolling on to a vast undiscovered ocean. It had rolled on ever since the world began. It had changed its course sometimes, and turned into new channels, leaving its old ways dry and barren. But it had ever been upon the flow, 
and ever was to flow until time should be no more against its strong unfathomable stream nothing made head no living creature no flower no leaf no particle of animate or inanimate existence ever strayed back from the undiscovered ocean the tide of the river set resistlessly towards it and the tide never stopped any more than the earth stops in its circling around the sun he lived in a busy place and he worked very hard to live he had no hope of ever being rich enough to live a month without hard work but he was quite content god knows to labor with a cheerful will he was one of an immense family all of whose sons and daughters gained their daily bread by daily work prolonged from their rising up betimes until their lying down at night beyond this destiny he had no prospect and he sought none there was overmuch drumming trumpeting and speech-making in the neighborhood where he dwelt but he had nothing to do with that such clash and uproar came from the bigwig family at the unaccountable proceedings of which race he marvelled much they set up the strangest statues in iron marble bronze and brass before his door and darkened his house with the legs and tails of uncouth images of horses he wondered what it all meant smiled in a rough good-humoured way he had and kept at his hard work the bigwig family composed of all the stateliest people thereabouts and all the noisiest had undertaken to save him the trouble of thinking for himself and to manage him and his affairs why truly said he i have little time upon my hands and if you will be so good as to take care of me in return for the money i pay over for the big big family were not above his money i shall be relieved and much obliged considering that you know best hence the drumming trumpeting and speech-making and the ugly images of horses which he was expected to fall down and worship i don't understand all this said he rubbing his furrowed brow confusedly but it has a meaning maybe if i could find it out it means returned the bigwig family suspecting something of what he said honor and glory in the highest to the highest merit oh said he and he was glad to hear that but when he looked among the images in iron marble bronze and brass he failed to find a rather meritorious countryman of his once the son of a warwickshire wool dealer or any single countryman whomsoever of that kind he could find none of the men whose knowledge had rescued him and his children from terrific and disfiguring disease whose boldness had raised his forefathers from the condition of serfs whose wise fancy had opened a new and high existence to the humblest whose skill had filled the working man's world with accumulated wonders whereas he did find others whom he knew no good of and even others whom he knew much ill of humph said he i don't quite understand it so he went home and sat down by his fireside to get it out of his mind now his fireside was a bare one all hemmed in by blackened streets but it was a precious place to him 
The hands of his wife were hardened with toil, and she was old before her time, but she was dear to him. His children, stunted in their growth, bore traces of unwholesome nurture, but they had beauty in his sight. Above all other things, it was an earnest desire of this man's soul that his children should be taught. If I am sometimes misled, said he, for want of knowledge, at least let them know better, and avoid my mistakes. If it is hard to me to reap the harvest of pleasure and instruction that is stored in books, let it be easier to them. But the Bigwig family broke out into violent family quarrels concerning what it was lawful to teach to this man's children. Some of the family insisted on such a thing being primary and indispensable above all other things, and others of the family insisted on such another thing being primary and indispensable above all other things, and the Bigwig family rent into factions, wrote pamphlets, held convocations, delivered charges, orations, and all variety of discourses, impounded one another in courts lay and courts ecclesiastical, through dirt exchanged pummelings and fell together by the ears in unintelligible animosity meanwhile this man in his short evening snatches at his fireside saw the demon ignorance arise there and take his children to itself he saw his daughter perverted into a heavy slatternly drudge he saw his son go moping down the ways of low sensuality to brutality and crime. He saw the dawning light of intelligence in the eyes of his babies, so changing into cunning and suspicion, that he could have rather wished them idiots. I don't understand this any better, said he, but I think it cannot be right. Nay, by the clouded heaven above me, I protest against this as my wrong. Becoming peaceable again, for his passion was usually short-lived and his nature kind. He looked about him on his Sundays and holidays, and he saw how much monotony and weariness there was, and thence how drunkenness arose with all its train of ruin. Then he appealed to the Bigwig family and said, We are a labouring people, and I have a glimmering suspicion in me that labouring people of whatever condition were made by a higher intelligence than yours, as I poorly understand it, to be in need of mental refreshment and recreation. See what we fall into when we rest without it. Come, amuse me harmlessly, show me something, give me an escape. But here the Bigwig family fell into a state of uproar absolutely deafening when some few voices were faintly heard proposing to show him the wonders of the world, the greatness of creation, the mighty changes of time, the workings of nature and the beauties of art, to show him these things, that is to say, at any period of his life when he could look upon them, there rose among the bigwigs such roaring and raving, such pulpiting and petitioning, such maunderings and memorializing, such name-calling and dirt-throwing, such a shrill wind of parliamentary questioning and feeble replying, where I dare not waited on, I would, that the poor fellow stood aghast, staring wildly around. Have I provoked all this, said he, with his hands to his affrighted ears, 
by what was meant to be an innocent request plainly arising out of my familiar experience and the common knowledge of all men who choose to open their eyes i don't understand and i am not understood what is to come of such a state of things he was bending over his work often asking himself the question when the news began to spread that a pestilence had appeared among the labourers and was slaying them by thousands going forth to look about him he soon found this to be true the dying and the dead were mingled in the close and tainted houses among which his life was passed new poison was distilled into the always murky always sickening air the robust and the weak old age and infancy the father and the mother all were stricken down alike what means of flight had he he remained there where he was and saw those who were dearest to him die a kind preacher came to him and would have said some prayers to soften his heart in his gloom but he replied oh what avails it missionary to come to me a man condemned to residence in this fitted place where every sense bestowed upon me for my delight becomes a torment and where every minute of my numbered days is new mire added to the heap under which i lie oppressed but give me my first glimpse of heaven through a little of its light and air give me pure water help me to be clean lighten this heavy atmosphere and heavy life in which our spirits sink and we become the indifferent and callous creatures you too often see us gently and kindly take the bodies of those who die among us out of the small room where we grow to be so familiar with the awful change that even its sanctity is lost to us and teacher then i will hear none knows better than you how willingly of him whose thoughts were so much with the poor and who had compassion for all human sorrow he was at work again solitary and sad when his master came and stood near to him dressed in black he also had suffered heavily his young wife his beautiful and good young wife was dead so too his only child master tis hard to bear i know it but be comforted i would give you comfort if i could the master thanked him from his heart but said he o oh, you labouring men the calamity began among you if you had but lived more healthily and decently i should not be the widowed and bereft mourner that i am this day master returned the other shaking his head i have begun to understand a little that most calamities will come from us as this one did and that none will stop at our poor doors until we are united with that great squabbling family yonder to do the things that are right we cannot live healthily and decently unless they who undertook to manage us provide the means we cannot be instructed unless they will teach us we cannot be rationally amused unless they will amuse us we cannot but have some false gods of our own 
while they set up so many of theirs in all the public places. The evil consequences of imperfect instruction, the evil consequences of pernicious neglect, the evil consequences of unnatural restraint and the denial of humanizing enjoyments, will all come from us, and none of them will stop with us. They will spread far and wide. They always do. They always have done. Just like the pestilence. I understand so much, I think, at last. But the master said again, O oh, you laboring men, how seldom do we ever hear of you, except in connection with some trouble. Master, he replied, I am nobody, and little likely to be heard of, nor yet much wanted to be heard of, perhaps, except when there is some trouble. But it never begins with me, and it never can end with me. As sure as death, it comes down to me, and it goes up from me. There was so much reason in what he said, that the bigwig family, getting wind of it, and being horribly frightened by the late desolation, resolved to unite with him to do the things that were right. At all events, so far as the said things were associated with the direct prevention, humanly speaking, of another pestilence. But as their fear wore off, which it soon began to do, they resumed their falling out among themselves, and did nothing. Consequently, the scourge appeared again, low down as before, and spread avengingly upward as before, and carried off vast numbers of the brawlers. But not a man among them ever admitted, if in the least degree he ever perceived, that he had anything to do with it. So nobody lived and died in the old, old, old way. And this, in the main, is the whole of nobody's story. Had he no name, you ask? Perhaps it was Legion. It matters little what his name was. Let us call him Legion. If you were ever in the Belgian villages near the field of Waterloo, you will have seen, in some quiet little church, a monument erected by faithful companions in arms to the memory of Colonel A, Major B, Captains C, D and E, Lieutenants F and G, Ensigns H, I and J, seven non-commissioned officers, and one hundred and thirty rank and file who fell in the discharge of their duty on the memorable day. The story of nobody is the story of the rank and file of the earth. They bear their share of the battle, they have their part in the victory, they fall, they leave no name but in the mass. The march of the proudest of us leads to the dusty way by which they go. Oh, let us think of them this year at the Christmas fire, and not forget them when it is burnt out. End of Nobody's Story Recording by Noel Badrian, County Offaly, Ireland Tom Tiddler's Ground This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. 
For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Kevin Green Charles Dickens' 200th Anniversary Collection, Volume 2 Tom Tiddler's Ground by Charles Dickens Chapter 1 Picking Up Soot and Cinders "'And why Tom Tiddler's ground?' said the traveller. "'Because he scatters halfpence to tramps and such-like,' returned the landlord. "'And of course they pick em up. "'And this being done on his own land, "'which it is his own land, you observe, "'and where his family's before him, "'why it is but regarding the halfpence as gold and silver, "'and turning the ownership of the property a bit round your finger, "'and there you have the name of the children's game complete. "'And it's appropriate, too,' said the landlord.' with his favourite action of stooping a little, to look across the table out of the window at vacancy, under the window-blind which was half drawn down. Leastwise it has been so considered by many gentlemen which have partook of chops and tea in the present humble parlour. The traveller was partaking of chops and tea in the present humble parlour, and the landlord's shot was fired obliquely at him. "'And you call him a hermit?' said the traveller. "'They call him such,' returned the landlord, evading personal responsibility. "'He is in general so considered.' "'What is a hermit?' asked the traveller. "'What is it?' repeated the landlord, drawing his hand across his chin. "'Yes, what is it?' The landlord stooped again to get a more comprehensive view of vacancy under the window-blind, and, with an asphyxiated appearance on him as one unaccustomed to definition, made no answer. "'I'll tell you what I suppose it to be,' said the traveller. "'An abominably dirty thing.' "'Mr. Mopes is dirty. It cannot be denied,' said the landlord. "'Intolerably conceited?' "'Mr. Mopes is vain of the life he leads, some do say,' replied the landlord, as another concession. "'A slothful, unsavoury, nasty reversal of the laws of human nature,' said the traveller, "'and for the sake of God's working world and its wholesomeness, both moral and physical, I would put the thing on the treadmill, if I had my way, wherever I found it.' whether on a pillar or in a hole, whether on Tom Tiddler's ground, or the Pope of Rome's ground, or a Hindu fakir's ground, or any other ground. "'I don't know about putting Mr. Mopes on a treadmill,' said the landlord, shaking his head very seriously. "'There ain't a doubt but what he has got landed property.' "'How far may it be to this said Tom Tiddler's ground?' asked the traveller. "'Put it at five mile,' returned the landlord. "'Well, when I have done my breakfast,' said the traveller, "'I'll go there.' "'I came over here this morning to find it out and see it.' "'Many does,' observed the landlord. The conversation passed, in the midsummer weather, of no remote year of grace, down among the pleasant dales and trout-streams of a green English county. No matter what county. Enough that you may hunt there, shoot there, fish there, traverse long grass-grown Roman roads there, open ancient barrows there, see many a square mile of richly cultivated land there, and hold Arcadian talk with a bold peasantry, their country's pride, who will tell you, if you want to know, how pastoral housekeeping is done on nine shillings a week. Mr. Traveller sat at his breakfast in the little sanded parlour of the Peel of Bells village alehouse, with the dew and dust of an early walk upon his shoes, an early walk by road and meadow and coppice, that had sprinkled him bountifully with little blades of grass and scraps of new hay, and with leaves both young and old, and with other such fragrant tokens of the freshness and wealth of summer. The window through which the landlord had concentrated his gaze upon vacancy was shaded, because the morning sun was hot and bright on the village street. The village street was like most other village streets, wide for its height, silent for its size, 
and drowsy in the dullest degree. The quietest little dwellings, with the largest of window-shutters, to shut up nothing as carefully as if it were the Mint or the Bank of England, had called in the doctor's house so suddenly that his brass door-plate and three stories stood among them as conspicuous and different as the doctor himself in his broadcloth among the smock-frocks of his patients. The village residences seemed to have gone to law with a similar absence of consideration, for a score of weak little lath-and-plaster cabins clung in confusion about the attorney's red-brick house, which, with glaring doorsteps and a most terrific scraper, seemed to serve all manner of ejectments upon them. They were as various as labourers, high-shouldered, wry-necked, one-eyed, goggle-eyed, squinting, bow-legged, knock-kneed, rheumatic, crazy. Some of the small tradesmen's houses, such as the crockery shop and the harness-maker, had a cyclops window in the middle of the gable, within an inch or two of its apex, suggesting that some forlorn rural prentice must wriggle himself into that apartment horizontally when he retired to rest, after the manner of the worm. So bountiful in its abundance was the surrounding country, and so lean and scant the village, that one might have thought the village had sown and planted everything it once possessed to convert the same into crops. This would account for the bareness of the little shops, the bareness of the few boards and trestles designed for market purposes in a corner of the street, the bareness of the obsolete inn and inn-yard, with the ominous inscription Excise Office, not yet faded out from the gateway, as indicating the very last thing that poverty could get rid of. This would also account for the determined abandonment of the village by one stray dog, fast lessening in the perspective where the white posts and the pond were, and would explain his conduct upon the hypothesis that he was going, through the act of suicide, to convert himself into manure, and become a part proprietor in turnips or mangle-wurzel. Mr. Traveller, having finished his breakfast and paid his moderate score, walked out to the threshold of the peal of bells, and thence directed by the pointing finger of his host, betook himself towards the ruined hermitage of Mr. Mopes, the hermit. For Mr. Mopes, by suffering everything about him to go to ruin, and by dressing himself in a blanket and skewer, and by steeping himself in soot and grease and other nastiness, had acquired great renown in all that countryside, far greater renown than he could ever have won for himself, if his career had been that of any ordinary Christian or decent Hottentot. He had even blanketed and skewered and sooted and greased himself into the London papers. And it was curious to find, as Mr. Traveller found, by stopping for a new direction at this farmhouse or at that cottage as he went along, with how much accuracy the morbid mopes had counted on the weakness of his neighbours to embellish him. A mist of home-brewed marvel and romance surrounded mopes, in which, as in all fogs, the real proportions of the real object were extravagantly heightened. He had murdered his beautiful beloved in a fit of jealousy and was doing penance. He had made a vow under the influence of grief. He had made a vow under the influence of a fatal accident. He had made a vow under the influence of religion. He had made a vow under the influence of drink. He had made a vow under the influence of disappointment. He had never made any vow, but had got led into it by the possession of a mighty and most awful secret. He was enormously rich. He was stupendously charitable. He was profoundly learned. He saw spectres. He knew and could do all kinds of wonders. Some said he went out every night, and was met by terrified wayfarers, stalking along dark roads. Others said he never went out. 
some knew his penance to be nearly expired others had positive information that his seclusion was not a penance at all and would never expire but with himself even as to the easy facts of how old he was or how long he had held verminous occupation of his blanket and skewer no consistent information was to be got from those who must know if they would he was represented as being all the ages between five-and-twenty and sixty and as having been a hermit seven years twelve twenty thirty though twenty on the whole appeared the favourite term well well said mr traveller at any rate let us see what a real live hermit looks like so mr traveller went on and on and on until he came to tom tiddler's ground it was a nook in a rustic by-road which the genius of mopes had laid waste as completely as if he had been born an emperor and a conqueror its centre object was a dwelling-house sufficiently substantial all the window-glass of which had been long ago abolished by the surprising genius of mopes and all the windows of which were barred across with rough split logs of trees nailed over them on the outside a rickyard hip-high in vegetable rankness and ruin contained outbuildings from which the thatch had lightly fluttered away on all the winds of all the seasons of the years and from which the planks and beams had heavily dropped and rotted the frosts and damps of winter and the heats of summer had warped what wreck remained so that not a post or a board retained the position it was meant to hold but everything was twisted from its purpose like its owner and degraded and debased in this homestead of the sluggard behind the ruined hedge and sinking away among the ruined grass and the nettles were the last perishing fragments of certain ricks which had gradually mildewed and collapsed until they looked like mounds of rotten honeycomb or dirty sponge tom tiddler's ground could even show its ruined water for there was a slimy pond into which a tree or two had fallen one soppy trunk and branches lay across it then which in its accumulation of stagnant weed and in its black decomposition and in all its foulness and filth was almost comforting regarded as the only water that could have reflected the shameful place without seeming polluted by that low office mr traveller looked all around him on tom tiddler's ground and his glance at last encountered a dusky tinker lying among the weeds and rank grass in the shade of the dwelling-house a rough walking staff lay on the ground by his side and his head rested on a small wallet he met mr traveller's eye without lifting up his head merely depressing his chin a little for he was lying on his back to get a better view of him good day said mr traveller same to you if you like it returned the tinker don't you like it it is a very fine day i ain't particular in weather returned the tinker with a yawn mr traveller had walked up to where he lay and was looking down at him this is a curious place said mr traveller ay i suppose so returned the tinker tom tiddler's ground they call this are you well acquainted with it never saw it afore to-day said the tinker with another yawn and don't care if i never see it again there was a man here just now told me what it was called if you want to see tom himself you must go in at that gate he faintly indicated with his chin a little mean ruin of a wooden gate at the side of the house have you seen tom no and i ain't particular to see him i can see a dirty man anywhere he does not live in the house then said mr traveller casting his eyes upon the house anew the man said returned the tinker rather irritably him as was here just now this what you're a-layin on mate is tom tiddler's ground and if you want to see tom he says you must go in at that gate 
"'The man come out of the gate himself, and he ought to know.' "'Certainly,' said Mr. Traveller. "'Though perhaps,' exclaimed the tinker, so struck by the brightness of his own idea, that it had the electric effect upon him of causing him to lift up his head an inch or so, "'perhaps he was a liar. He told some rummans. Immers was here just now. Did about this place of Tom's. He says, Immers was here just now, when Tom shut up the house, mate, to go to rack, the beds was left, all made, like as if somebody was a-going to sleep in every bed. And if you was to walk through the bedrooms now, you'd see the raggedy mouldy bedclothes a even and a even like seas. And a even and even with what, he says? Why, with the rats under em. I wish I had seen that man, Mr. Traveller remarked. You'd have been welcome to see him, instead of me seeing him, growled the tinker, for he was a long-winded one. Not without a sense of injury in the remembrance, the tinker gloomily closed his eyes. Mr. Traveller, deeming the tinker a short-winded one, from whom no further breath of information was to be derived, betook himself to the gate. Swung upon its rusty hinges, it admitted him into a yard in which there was nothing to be seen but an outhouse attached to the ruined building, with a barred window in it. As there were traces of many recent footsteps under this window, and as it was a low window and unglazed, Mr. Traveller made bold to peep within the bars and there, to be sure, he had a real-life hermit before him, and could judge how the real dead hermits used to look. He was lying on a bank of soot and cinders on the floor, in front of a rusty fireplace. There was nothing else in the dark little kitchen or scullery, or whatever his den had originally been used as, but a table with a litter of old bottles on it. A rat made a clatter among these bottles, jumped down, and ran over the real-life hermit on its way to its hole, or the man in his hole would not have been so easily discernible. Tickled in the face by the rat's tail, the owner of Tom Tiddler's ground opened his eyes, saw Mr. Traveller, started up and sprang to the window. Oh, thought Mr. Traveller, retiring a pace or two from the bars, a compound of Newgate, Bedlam, a debtor's prison in the worst time, a chimney-sweep, a mudlark, and the noble savage. A nice old family, the hermit family. Huh. Mr. Traveller thought this, as he silently confronted the sooty object in the blanket and skewer, in sober truth it wore nothing else, with the matted hair and the staring eyes. Further, Mr. Traveller thought, as the eyes surveyed him, with a very obvious curiosity in ascertaining the effect they produced, vanity, 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 verily all is vanity. "'What is your name, sir, and where do you come from?' asked Mr. Mopes, the hermit, with an air of authority, but in the ordinary human speech of one who had been to school. Mr. Traveller answered the inquiries. "'Do you come here, sir, to see me?' "'I did. I heard of you, and I came to see you. I know you like to be seen.' Mr. Traveller coolly threw the last words in, as a matter of course, to forestall an affectation of resentment or objection that he saw rising beneath the grease and grime of the face. They had their effect. "'So,' said the hermit, after a momentary silence, unclasping the bars by which he had previously held, and seating himself behind them on the ledge of the window, with his bare legs and feet crouched up. "'You know I like to be seen.' Mr. Traveller looked about him for something to sit on, and, observing a billet of wood in a corner, brought it near the window. Deliberately seating himself upon it, he answered, "'Just so.' Each looked at the other, and each appeared to take some pains to get the measure of the other. "'Then you have come to ask me why I lead this life,' said the hermit, frowning in a stormy manner. "'I never tell that to any human being. I will not be asked that.' "'Certainly you will not be asked that by me,' said Mr. Traveller, "'for I have not the slightest desire to know.' "'You are an uncouth man,' said Mr. Mopes the Hermit. 
"'You are another,' said Mr. Traveller. The hermit, who was plainly in the habit of overawing his visitors with the novelty of his filth and his blanket and skewer, glared at his present visitor in some discomfiture and surprise, as if he had taken aim at him with a sure gun, and his piece had missed fire. "'Why do you come here at all?' he asked, after a pause. "'Upon my life,' said Mr. Traveller, "'I was made to ask myself that very question only a few minutes ago, by a tinker too.' As he glanced towards the gate in saying it, the hermit glanced in that direction likewise. "'Yes, he is lying on his back in the sunlight outside,' said Mr. Traveller, as if he had been asked concerning the man. "'And he won't come in, for he says, and really very reasonably, "'What should I come in for? I can see a dirty man anywhere.' "'You are an insolent person. Go away from my premises. Go!' said the hermit, in an imperious and angry tone. "'Come, come,' returned Mr. Traveller, quite undisturbed. "'This is a little too much. You are not going to call yourself clean. Look at your legs. And as to these being your premises, they are in far too disgraceful a condition to claim any privilege of ownership or anything else.' The hermit bounced down from his window-ledge, and cast himself on his bed of soot and cinders. "'I am not going,' said Mr. Traveller, glancing in after him. "'You won't get rid of me in that way. You had better come and talk.' "'I won't,' said the hermit, flouncing round to get his back toward the window. "'Then I will,' said Mr. Traveller. "'Why should you take it ill that I have no curiosity to know why you live this highly absurd and highly indecent life? When I contemplate a man in a state of disease, surely there is no moral obligation on me to be anxious to know how he took it.' After a short silence the hermit bounced up again and came back to the barred window. "'What? You are not gone?' he said, affecting to have supposed that he was. "'Nor going,' Mr. Traveller replied. "'I design to pass this summer day here.' "'How dare you come, sir, upon my premises?' the hermit was returning, when his visitor interrupted him. "'Really, you know, you must not talk about your premises. I cannot allow such a place as this to be dignified with the name of premises.' "'How dare you?' said the hermit, shaking his bars. "'Come in at my gate to taunt me with being in a diseased state.' "'Why, Lord bless my soul,' returned the other very composedly, "'you have not the face to say that you are in a wholesome state. Do allow me again to call your attention to your legs. Scrape yourself anywhere, with anything, and then tell me you are in a wholesome state. The fact is, Mr. Mopes, that you are not only a nuisance—' "'A nuisance!' repeated the hermit fiercely. What is a place in this obscene state of dilapidation but a nuisance? What is a man in your obscene state of dilapidation but a nuisance? Then, as you very well know, you cannot do without an audience, and your audience is a nuisance. You attract all the disreputable vagabonds and prowlers within ten miles around by exhibiting yourself to them in that objectionable blanket, and by throwing copper money among them, and giving them drink out of those very dirty jars and bottles that I see there, their stomachs need be strong. And in short, said Mr. Traveller, summing up in a quietly and comfortably settled manner, you are a nuisance, and this kennel is a nuisance, and the audience that you cannot possibly dispense with is a nuisance, and the nuisance is not merely a local nuisance, because it is a general nuisance to know that there can be such a nuisance left in civilization so very long after its time. "'Will you go away? I have a gun in here,' said the hermit. "'Pooh! I have!' Now I put it to you. Did I say you had not? And as to going away, didn't I say I am not going away? You have made me forget where I was. I now remember that I was remarking on your conduct being a nuisance. Moreover, it is in the last and lowest degree inconsequent foolishness and weakness. Weakness? 
echoed the hermit. Weakness, said Mr. Traveller, with his former comfortably settled final air. I weak, you fool, cried the hermit. I, who have held to my purpose and my diet, and my only bed there, all these years. The more the years, the weaker you, returned Mr. Traveller. Though the years are not so many as folks say, and as you willingly take credit for, the crust upon your face is thick and dark, Mr. Mopes, but I can see enough of you through it to see that you are still a young man. Inconsequent foolishness is lunacy, I suppose, said the hermit. I suppose it is very like it, answered Mr. Traveller. Do I converse like a lunatic? One of us two must have a strong presumption against him of being one, whether or no. Either the clean and decorously clad man, or the dirty and indecorously clad man. I don't say which. Why, you self-sufficient bear, said the hermit. Not a day passes, but I am justified in my purpose by the conversations I hold here. Not a day passes, but I am shown by everything I hear and see here, how right and strong I am in holding my purpose. Mr. Traveller, lounging easily on his billet of wood, took out a pocket-pipe and began to fill it. "'Now that a man,' he said, appealing to the summer sky as he did so, "'that a man, even behind bars, in a blanket and skewer, "'should tell me that he can see, from day to day, "'any orders or conditions of men, women, or children, "'who can by any possibility teach him "'that it is anything but the miserablest drivelling "'for a human creature to quarrel with his social nature, "'not to go so far as to say, "'to renounce his common human decency, "'for that is an extreme case. "'Or who can teach him?' that he can in any wise separate himself from his kind and the habits of his kind without becoming a deteriorated spectacle calculated to give the devil and perhaps the monkeys pleasure it is something wonderful i repeat said mr traveller beginning to smoke the unreasoning hardihood of it is something wonderful even a man with the dirt upon him an inch or two thick behind bars in a blanket and skewer the hermit looked at him irresolutely and retired to his soot and cinders and lay down and got up again and came to the bars and again looked at him irresolutely and finally said with sharpness i don't like tobacco i don't like dirt rejoined mr traveller tobacco is an excellent disinfectant we shall both be the better for my pipe it is my intention to sit here through this summer day until that blessed summer sun sinks low in the west and to show you what a poor creature you are through the lips of every chance wayfarer who may come in at your gate. "'What do you mean?' inquired the hermit, with a furious air. "'I mean that yonder is your gate, and there are you, and here am I. I mean that I know it to be a moral impossibility that any person can stray in at that gate from any point of the compass, with any sort of experience, gained at first hand or derived from another, that can confute me and justify you.' "'You are an arrogant and boastful hero,' said the hermit. "'You think yourself profoundly wise?' "'Bah!' returned Mr. Traveller, quietly smoking. "'There is little wisdom in knowing that every man must be up and doing, "'and that all mankind are made dependent on one another.' "'You have companions outside,' said the hermit. "'I am not to be imposed upon by your assumed confidence in the people who may enter.' "'A depraved distrust,' returned the visitor, compassionately raising his eyebrows. "'Of course belongs to your state. I can't help that.' "'Do you mean to tell me you have no confederates?' "'I mean to tell you nothing but what I have told you. "'What I have told you is that it is a moral impossibility "'that any son or daughter of Adam can stand on this ground that I put my foot on, "'or on any ground that mortal treads, "'and gainsay the healthy tenure on which we hold our existence.' "'Which is,' 
sneered the hermit, "'according to you—' "'Which is,' returned the other, "'according to eternal providence, "'that we must arise and wash our faces "'and do our gregarious work "'and act and react on one another, "'leaving only idiot and the palsied "'to sit blinking in the corner. "'Come!' apostrophizing the gate. "'Open sesame! "'Show his eyes and grieve his heart. "'I don't care who comes, "'for I know what must come of it.' With that he faced round a little on his billet of wood towards the gate, and Mr. Mopes the hermit, after two or three ridiculous bounces of indecision at his bed and back again, submitted to what he could not help himself against, and coiled himself on his window-ledge, holding to his bars and looking out rather anxiously. End of chapter 1 When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Chapters six and seven of Tom Tiddler's Ground by Charles Dickens. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Charles Dickens' two hundredth anniversary collection, volume two. Tom Tiddler's Ground by Charles Dickens. Chapter six. Picking up Miss Kimmeens. The day was by this time waning when the gate again opened, and with the brilliant golden light that streamed from the declining sun, and touched the very bars of the sooty creature's den, there passed in a little child, a little girl with beautiful bright hair. She wore a plain straw hat, had a door-key in her hand, and tripped towards Mr. Traveller, as if she were pleased to see him, and were going to repose some childish confidence in him, when she caught sight of the figure behind the bars, and started back in terror. "'Don't be alarmed, darling,' said Mr. Traveller, taking her by the hand. "'Oh, but I don't like it,' urged the shrinking child. "'It's dreadful.' "'Well, I don't like it either,' said Mr. Traveller. "'Who has put it there?' asked the little girl. "'Does it bite?' "'No, only barks. "'But can't you make up your mind to see it, my dear?' "'For she was covering her eyes. "'Oh, no, 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 no,' returned the child. "'I cannot bear to look at it.' Mr. Traveller turned his head towards his friend in there, as much as to ask him how he liked that instance of his success, and then took the child out at the still open gate, and stood talking to her for some half an hour in the mellow sunlight. At length he returned, encouraging her as she held his arms with both her hands, and laying his protecting hand upon her head, and smoothing her pretty hair, he addressed his friend behind the bars as follows. Miss Pupford's establishment for six young ladies of tender years is an establishment of a compact nature, an establishment in miniature, quite a pocket establishment. Miss Pupford, Miss Pupford's assistant, with the Parisian accent, Miss Pupford's cook, and Miss Pupford's housemaid, complete what Miss Pupford calls the educational and domestic staff of her Lilliputian college. Miss Pupford is one of the most amiable of her sex. It necessarily follows that she possesses a sweet temper, and would own to the possession of a great deal of sentiment, if she considered it quite reconcilable with her duty to parents. Deeming it not in the bond, 
Miss Pupford keeps it as far out of sight as she can, which, God bless her, is not very far. Miss Pupford's assistant, with a Parisian accent, may be regarded as in some sort of an inspired lady, for she never conversed with a Parisian, and was never out of England, except once in the pleasure-boat Lively, in the foreign waters that ebb and flow two miles off Margate at high water. Even under those geographically favourable circumstances for the acquisition of the French language in its utmost politeness and purity, Miss Popford's assistant did not fully profit by the opportunity, for the pleasure-boat Lively so strongly asserted its title to its name on that occasion that she was reduced to the condition of lying in the bottom of the boat, pickling in brine, as if she were being salted down for the use of the navy, undergoing at the same time a great mental alarm, corporeal distress, and clear starching derangement. When Miss Pupford and her assistant first foregathered is not known to men or pupils, but it was long ago. A belief would have established itself among pupils that the two once went to school together, were it not for the difficulty and audacity of imagining Miss Pupford born without mittens, and without a front, and without a bit of gold wire among her front teeth, and without little dabs of powder on her neat little face and nose. Indeed, whenever Miss Pupford gives a little lecture on the mythology of the misguided heathens, always carefully excluding Cupid from recognition, and tells how Minerva sprang, perfectly equipped from the brain of Jupiter, she is half supposed to hint, So I myself came into the world, completely up in pinnock, magnol, tables, and the use of the globes. Howbeit, Miss Pupford and Miss Pupford's assistant are old, old friends. And it is thought by pupils that, after pupils are gone to bed, they even call one another by their Christian names in the quiet little parlour. For, once upon a time, on a thunderous afternoon, when Miss Pupford fainted away without notice, Miss Pupford's assistant, never heard before or since to address her otherwise than as Miss Pupford, ran to her, crying out, "'My dearest Euphemia!' And Euphemia is Miss Pupford's Christian name, on the sampler, date picked out, hanging up in the college hall, where the two peacocks, terrified to death by some German text that is waddling downhill after them, out of a cottage, are scuttling away to hide their profiles in two immense beanstalks growing out of flower-pots. Also there is a notion latent among pupils that Miss Pupford was once in love, and that the beloved object still moves upon this ball. Also that he is a public character, and a personage of vast consequence. Also that Miss Pupford's assistant knows all about it. For sometimes, on an afternoon, when Miss Pupford has been reading the paper through her little gold eye-glass, it is necessary to read it on the spot, as the boy calls for it, with ill-conditioned punctuality in an hour, she has become agitated, and has said to her assistant, "'Gee!' Then Miss Pupford's assistant has gone to Miss Pupford, and Miss Pupford has pointed out, with her eye-glass, "'Gee!' in the paper. And then Miss Pupford's assistant has read about "Gee," and has shown sympathy. So stimulated has the pupil-mind been, in its time to curiosity on the subject of "Gee," that once, under temporary circumstances favourable to the bold Sally, one fearless pupil did actually obtain possession of the paper, and range all over it in search of "Gee," who had been discovered therein by Miss Pupford not ten minutes before. But no "Gee" could be identified except one capital offender who had been executed in a state of great hardihood, and it was not to be supposed that Miss Pupford could have ever loved him. Besides, he couldn't be always being executed. 
Besides, he got into the paper again, alive, within a month. On the whole, it is suspected, by the pupil mind, that G is a short, chubby old gentleman, with little black sealing-wax boots up to his knees, whom a sharply observant pupil, Miss Lynx, when she once went to Tunbridge Wells with Miss Pupford of the holidays, reported on her return, privately and confidentially, to have seen come capering up to Miss Pupford on the promenade, and to have detected in the act of squeezing Miss Pupford's hand, and to have heard pronounce the words, "'Cruel Euphemia, ever thine,' or something like that. Miss Lynx hazarded a guess that he might be House of Commons, or Money Market, or Court Circular, or Fashionable Movements, which would account for his getting into the paper so often. But it was fatally objected by the pupil mind that none of those notabilities could possibly be spelt with a G. There are other occasions, closely watched and perfectly comprehended by the pupil mind, when Miss Pupford imparts with mystery to her assistant that there is special excitement in the morning paper. These occasions are when Miss Pupford finds an old pupil coming out under the head of births or marriages. Affectionate tears are invariably seen in Miss Pupford's meek little eyes when this is the case, and the pupil mind, perceiving that its order has distinguished itself, though the fact is never mentioned by Miss Pupford, becomes elevated and feels that it likewise is reserved for greatness. Miss Pupford's assistant, with the Parisian accent, has a little more bone than Miss Pupford, but is of the same trim, orderly, diminutive cast and from long contemplation, admiration, and imitation of Miss Pupford, has grown like her. Being entirely devoted to Miss Pupford, and having a pretty talent for pencil-drawing, she once made a portrait of that lady, which was so instantly identified and hailed by the pupils that it was done on stone at five shillings. Surely the softest and milkiest stone that ever was quarried received that likeness of Miss Pupford, the lines of her placid little nose are so undecided in it that strangers to the work of art are observed to be exceedingly perplexed as to where the nose goes to, and involuntarily feel their own noses in a disconcerted manner. Miss Pupford, being represented in a state of dejection at an open window, ruminating over a bowl of goldfish, the pupil mind has settled that the bowl was presented by G, and that he wreathed the bowl with flowers of soul and that Miss Pupford is depicted as waiting for him on a memorable occasion when he was behind his time. The approach of the last midsummer holidays had a particular interest for the pupil mind, by reason of its knowing that Miss Pupford was bidden, on the second day of those holidays, to the nuptials of a former pupil. As it was impossible to conceal the fact, so extensive were the dressmaking preparations, Miss Pupford openly announced it but she held it due to parents to make the announcement with an air of gentle melancholy, as if marriage were, as indeed it exceptionally has been, rather a calamity. With an air of softened resignation and pity, therefore, Miss Pupford went on with her preparations, and meanwhile no pupil ever went upstairs or came down without peeping in at the door of Miss Pupford's bedroom, when Miss Pupford wasn't there, and bringing back some surprising intelligence concerning the bonnet. The extensive preparations being completed on the day before the holidays, and unanimous entreaty was preferred to Miss Pupford by the pupil mind, finding expression through Miss Pupford's assistant that she would deign to appear in all her splendour, Miss Pupford consenting, presented a lovely spectacle, and although the oldest pupil was barely thirteen, 
every one of the six became in two minutes perfect in the shape, cut, colour, price, and quality of every article Miss Pupford wore. Thus delightfully ushered in, the holidays began. Five of the six pupils kissed little Kitty Kimmeens twenty times over, round total one hundred times, for she was very popular, and so went home. Miss Kitty Kimmeens remained behind, for her relations and friends were all in India, far away. A self-helpful, steady little child is Miss Kitty Kimmeens, a dimpled child, too, and a loving. So the great marriage day came, and Miss Pupford, quite as much fluttered as any bride could be, gee, thought Miss Kitty Kimmeens, went away, splendid to behold, in the carriage that was sent for her. But not Miss Pupford only went away, for Miss Pupford's assistant went away with her, on a dutiful visit to an aged uncle, though surely the venerable gentleman couldn't live in the gallery of the church where the marriage was to be, thought Miss Kitty Kimmeens. And yet Miss Pupford's assistant had let out that she was going there. Where the cook was going didn't appear, but she generally conveyed to Miss Kimmeens that she was bound, rather against her will, on a pilgrimage to perform some pious office that rendered new ribbons necessary to her best bonnet, and also sandals to her shoes. "'So you see,' said the housemaid, when they were all gone, "'there's nobody left in the house but you and me, Miss Kimmeens.' "'Nobody else,' said Miss Kitty Kimmeens, shaking her curls a little sadly. "'Nobody.' "'And you wouldn't like your Bella to go too, would you, Miss Kimmeens?' said the housemaid, she being Bella. "'No,' answered little Miss Kimmeens. "'Your poor Bella is forced to stay with you, whether she likes it or not, ain't she, Miss Kimmeens?' "'Don't you like it?' inquired Kitty. "'Why, you're such a darling, Miss, that it would be unkind of your Bella to make objections. Yet my brother-in-law has been took unexpected bad by this morning's post, and your poor Bella is much attached to him, letting alone a favourite sister, Miss Kimmeens.' "'Is he very ill?' asked little Kitty. "'Your poor Bella has fears so, Miss Kimmeens,' returned the housemaid, with her apron at her eyes. "'It was but his inside, it is true, but it might mount, and the doctor said that if it mounted he wouldn't answer.' Here the housemaid was so overcome that Kitty administered the only comfort she had ready, which was a kiss. "'If it hadn't been for disappointing Cook, dear Miss Kimmeens,' said the housemaid, "'your Bella would have asked her to stay with you, for Cook is sweet company, Miss Kimmeens, much more so than your own poor Bella.' "'But you're very nice, Bella.' "'Your Bella could wish to be so, Miss Kimmeens,' returned the housemaid. "'But she knows full well that it do not lay in her power this day.' With which despondent conviction the housemaid drew a heavy sigh, and shook her head, and dropped it on one side. "'If it had been always right to disappoint Cook,' she pursued, in a contemplative and abstracted manner, "'it might have been so easy done. I could have got to my brother-in-law's, and had the best part of the day there, and got back.' long before our ladies come home at night and neither the one nor the other of them need have known it not that miss pupford would at all object but that it might put her out being tender-hearted Howsoever, your own poor bella miss kimmeens said the housemaid rousing herself is forced to stay with you and you're a precious love if not a liberty bella said little kitty after a short silence call your own poor bella your bella dear the housemaid besought her "'My Bella, then.' "'Bless your considerate heart,' said the housemaid. "'If you would not mind leaving me, I should not mind being left. I am not afraid to stay in the house alone, and you need not be uneasy on my account, for I would be very careful to do no harm.' "'Oh, as to harm, you more than sweetest, if not my liberty,' exclaimed the housemaid in rapture. "'Your Bella could trust you anywhere, being so steady and so answerable. The oldest head in this house,' me and Cook says, 
but for its bright hair is miss kimmeens but no i will not leave you for you would think your bella unkind but if you are my bella you must go returned the child must i said the housemaid rising on the whole with a clarity what must be must be miss kimmeens your own poor bella acts according though unwilling but go or stay your own poor bella loves you miss kimmeens it was certainly go and not stay for within five minutes miss kimmeens own poor bella so much improved in point of spirits as to have grown almost sanguine on the subject of her brother-in-law went her way in apparel that seemed to have been expressly prepared for some festive occasion such are the changes of this fleeting world and so short-sighted are we poor mortals when the house-door closed with a bang and a shake it seemed to miss kimmeens to be a very heavy house-door shutting her up in a wilderness of a house but miss kimmeens being as before stated of a self-reliant and methodical character presently began to parcel out the long summer day before her at first she thought she would go all over the house to make quite sure that nobody with a great coat on and carving knife in it had got under one of the beds or into one of the cupboards not that she had ever before been troubled by the image of anybody armed with a great coat and a carving knife but that it seemed to have been shaken into existence by the shake and the bang of the great street door reverberating through the solitary house so little miss kimmeens looked under the five empty beds of the five departed pupils and looked under her own bed and looked under miss pupford's bed and looked under miss pupford's assistant's bed and when she had done this and was making the tour of the cupboards the disagreeable thought came into her young head what a very alarming thing it would be to find somebody with a mask on like guy fawkes hiding bolt upright in a corner and pretending not to be alive however miss kimmeens having finished her inspection without making any such uncomfortable discovery sat down in her tidy little manner to needlework and began stitching away at a great rate the silence all about her soon grew very oppressive and the more so because of the odd inconsistency that the more silent it was the more noises there were the noise of her own needle and thread as she stitched was infinitely louder in her ears than the stitching of all the six pupils and of miss pupford and of miss pupford's assistant all stitching away at once on a highly emulative afternoon then the schoolroom clock conducted itself in a way in which it had never conducted itself before fell lame somehow and yet persisted in running on as hard and as loud as it could the consequence of which behaviour was that it staggered among the minutes in a state of the greatest confusion and knocked them about in all directions without appearing to get on with its regular work perhaps this alarmed the stairs but be that as it might they began to creak in a most unusual manner and then the furniture began to crack and then poor little miss kimmeens not liking the furtive aspect of things in general began to sing as she stitched but it was not her own voice that she heard it was somebody else making believe to be kitty and singing excessively flat without any heart so as that would never mend matters she left off again by and by the stitching became so palpable a failure that miss kitty kimmeens folded her work neatly and put it away in its box and gave it up then the question arose about reading but no the book that was so delightful when there was somebody she loved for her eyes to fall on when they rose from the page had not more heart in it than her own singing now the book went to its shelf as the needlework had gone to its box and since something must be done thought the child i'll go put my room to rights 
she shared her room with her dearest little friend among the other five pupils, and why then should she now conceive a lurking dread of the little friend's bedstead? But she did. There was a stealthy air about its innocent white curtains, and there were even dark hints of a dead girl lying under the coverlet. The great want of human company, the great need of a human face, began now to express itself in the facility with which the furniture put on strange, exaggerated resemblances to human looks. A chair with a menacing frown was horribly out of temper in a corner. A most vicious chest of drawers snarled at her from between the windows. It was no relief to escape from those monsters to the looking-glass, for the reflection said, "'What? Is that you all alone there? How you stare!' and the background was all a great void stare as well. The day dragged on, dragging Kitty with it very slowly by the hair of her head, until it was time to eat. There were good provisions in the pantry, but their right flavour and relish had evaporated with the five pupils, and Miss Pupford, and Miss Pupford's assistant, and the cook and housemaid. Where was the use of laying the cloth symmetrically for one small guest, who had gone on ever since the morning growing smaller and smaller, while the empty house had gone on swelling larger and larger. The very grace came out wrong, for who were we who were going to receive and be thankful? So Miss Kameens was not thankful, and found herself taking her dinner in a very slovenly style, gobbling it up, in short, rather after the manner of the lower animals, not to particularise the pigs. But this was by no means the worst of the change wrought out in the naturally loving and cheery little creature, as the solitary day wore on. She began to brood and be suspicious. She discovered that she was full of wrongs and injuries. All the people she knew got tainted by her lonely thoughts and turned bad. It was all very well for Papa, a widower in India, to send her home to be educated, and to pay a handsome round sum every year for her to Miss Pupford, and to write charming letters to his darling little daughter but what did he care for her being left by herself, when he was, as no doubt he always was, enjoying himself in company from morning till night? Perhaps he only sent her here, after all, to get her out of the way. It looked like it. Looked like it to-day, that is, for she had never dreamed of such a thing before. And this old pupil who was being married. It was unsupportably conceited and selfish in the old pupil to be married. She was very vain, and very glad to show off, but it was highly probable that she wasn't pretty, and even if she were pretty, which Miss Kameens now totally denied, she had no business to be married, and even if marriage were conceded, she had no business to ask Miss Pupford to her wedding. As to Miss Pupford, she was too old to go to any wedding. She ought to know that. She had much better attend to her business. She had thought she looked nice in the morning, but she didn't look nice. She was a stupid old thing. G was another stupid old thing. Miss Pupford's assistant was another. They were all stupid old things together. More than that, it began to be obvious that this was a plot. They had said to one another, Never mind Kitty, you get off, I'll get off, and we'll leave Kitty to look after herself. Who cares for her? To be sure, they were right in that question, for who did care for her, a poor little lonely thing, against whom they had all planned and plotted? Nobody, nobody. Here Kitty sobbed. At all other times she was the pet of the whole house, and loved her five companions in return with a child's tenderest and most ingenious attachment. But now the five companions put on ugly colours and appeared for the first time under a sullen cloud. 
there they were all at their homes that day being made much of being taken out being spoilt and made disagreeable and caring nothing for her it was like their artful selfishness always to tell her when they came back under pretence of confidence and friendship all those details about where they had been and what they had done and seen and how often they had said oh if we had only darling little kitty here here indeed i dare say when they came back after the holidays they were used to being received by kitty and to saying that coming to kitty was like coming to another home very well then why did they go away if they meant it why did they go away let them answer that but they didn't mean it and couldn't answer that and they didn't tell the truth and people who didn't tell the truth were hateful when they came back next time they should be received in a new manner they should be avoided and shunned and there the while she sat all alone revolving how ill she was used and how much better she was than the people who were not alone the wedding breakfast was going on no question of it with a nasty great bride cake and with those ridiculous orange flowers and with that conceited bride and that hideous bridegroom and those heartless bridemaids and miss pupford stuck up at the table they thought they were enjoying themselves but it would come home to them one day to have thought so they would all be dead in a few years let them enjoy themselves ever so much it was a religious comfort to know that it was such a comfort to know it that little miss camine suddenly sprang from the chair in which she had been musing in a corner and cried out oh those envious thoughts are not mine oh this wicked creature isn't me help me somebody i go wrong alone by my weak self help me anybody miss camines is not a professed philosopher sir said mr traveller presenting her at the barred window and smoothing her shining hair but i apprehend there was some tincture of philosophy in her words and in the prompt action with which she followed them that action was to emerge from her unnatural solitude and look abroad for wholesome sympathy to bestow and to receive her footsteps strayed to this gate bringing her here by chance as an apposite contrast to you the child came out sir if you have the wisdom to learn from a child but i doubt it for that requires more wisdom than one in your condition would seem to possess you cannot do better than imitate the child and come out too from that very demoralizing hutch of yours chapter seven picking up the tinker it was now sunset the hermit had betaken himself to his bed of cinders half an hour ago and lying on it in his blanket and skewer with his back to the window took not the smallest heed of the appeal addressed to him all that had been said for the last two hours had been said to a tinkling accompaniment performed by the tinker who had got to work upon some villager's pot or kettle and was working briskly outside this music still continuing seemed to put it into mr traveller's mind to have another word or two with the tinker so holding miss camines with whom he was now on the most friendly terms by the hand he went out at the gate to where the tinker was seated at his work on the patch of grass on the opposite side of the road with his wallet of tools open before him and his little fire smoking i'm glad to see you employed said mr traveller i'm glad to be employed returned the tinker looking up as he put the finishing touches to his job but why are you glad i thought you were a lazy fellow when i saw you this morning i was only disgusted said the tinker do you mean with the fine weather with the fine weather repeated the tinker staring you told me you were not particular as to the weather and i thought ha ah, how should such as me get on if we was particular as to weather we must take it as it comes and make the best of it 
there's something good in all weathers if it don't happen to be good for my work to-day it's good for some other man's to-day and will come round to me to-morrow we must all live pray shake hands said mr traveller take care sir was the tinker's caution as he reached up his hand in surprise the black comes off i'm glad of it said mr traveller i have been for several hours among other black that does not come off you speaking of tom in there yes well now said the tinker blowing the dust off his job which was finished ain't it enough to disgust a pig if he could give his mind to it if he could give his mind to it returned the other smiling the probability is that he wouldn't be a pig there you clench the nail returned the tinker then what's to be said for tom truly very little truly nothing you mean sir said the tinker as he put away his tools a better answer and i freely acknowledge my meaning i infer that he was the cause of your disgust why looky here sir said the tinker rising to his feet and wiping his face on the corner of his black apron energetically i'll leave you to judge i ask you last night i has a job that needs to be done in the night and i works all night well there's nothing in that but this morning i comes along this road here looking for a sunny and soft spot to sleep in and i sees this desolation and ruination i've lived myself in desolation and ruination i knows many a feller creature that's forced to live life long in desolation and ruination and i sits me down and takes pity on it as i cast my eyes about then comes up the long-winded one as i told you of from that gate and spins himself out like a silkworm concerning the donkey if my donkey at home will excuse me as has made it all made it of his own choice and he tells me if you please of his likewise choosing to go ragged and naked and grimy masquerading mounty banking in what is the real hard lot of thousands and thousands why then i say it's an unbearable and nonsensical piece of inconsistency and i'm disgusted i'm ashamed and disgusted i wish you'd come and look at him said mr traveller clapping the tinker on the shoulder not i sir he rejoined i ain't a gonna flatter him up by looking at him but he is asleep are you sure he's asleep asked the tinker with an unwilling air as he shouldered his wallet sure then i'll look at him for a quarter of a minute said the tinker since you so much wish it but not a moment longer they all three went back across the road and through the barred window by the dying glow of the sunset coming in at the gate which the child held open for its admission he could be pretty clearly discerned lying on his bed you see him asked mr traveller yes returned the tinker and he's worse than i thought him mr traveller then whispered in a few words what he had done since morning and asked the tinker what he thought of that i think returned the tinker as he turned from the window that you've wasted a day on him i think so too though not i hope upon myself do you happen to be going anywhere near the peal of bells that's my direct way sir said the tinker i invite you to supper there and as i learn from this young lady that she goes some three-quarters of a mile in the same direction we will drop her on the road and we will spare time to keep her company at her garden gate until her own bella comes home so mr traveller and the child and the tinker went along very amicably in the sweet-scented evening and the moral with which the tinker dismissed the subject was that he said in his trade that metal that rotted for want of use had better be left to rot and couldn't rot too soon considering how much true metal rotted from overuse and hard service end of tom tiddler's ground chapters 6 and 7
Section 17 Charles Dickens' 200th Anniversary Collection, Volume 2, by Charles Dickens. Our School from Reprinted Pieces. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Joyce Martin. Charles Dickens' 200th Anniversary Collection, Volume 2. Section 17 by Charles Dickens Our School We went to look at it only this last midsummer, and found that the railway had cut it up root and branch. A great trunk line had swallowed the playground, sliced away the schoolroom, and pared off the corner of the house which, thus curtailed of its proportions, presented itself in a green stage of stucco profile-wise toward the road, like a forlorn flat-iron without a handle, standing on end. It seems as if our schools were doomed to be the sport of change. We have faint recollections of a preparatory day school which we have sought in vain, and which must have been pulled down to make a new street ages ago. We have dim impressions scarcely amounting to a belief that it was over a dyer's shop. We know that you went up steps to it, that you frequently grazed your knees in doing so, that you generally got your leg over the scraper in trying to scrape the mud off a very unsteady little shoe. The mistress of the establishment holds no place in our memory, but rampant on one eternal doormat, in an eternal entry long and narrow, is a puffy pug dog with a personal animosity toward us, who triumphs over time. The bark of that baleful pug a certain radiating way he had of snapping at our undefended legs, the ghastly grinning of his moist black muzzle and white teeth, and the insolence of his crisp tail curled like a pastoral crook, all live and flourish. From an otherwise unaccountable association of him with a fiddle, we conclude that he was of French extraction and his name Fidele. He belonged to some female, chiefly inhabiting a back parlor, whose life appears to us to have been consumed in sniffing and in wearing a brown beaver bonnet. For her he would sit up and balance cake upon his nose and not eat it until twenty had been counted. To the best of our belief we were once called in to witness this performance when, unable even in his milder moments to endure our presence, he instantly made at us cake and all. Why a something in mourning called Miss Frost, should still connect itself with our preparatory school, we are unable to say. We retain no impression of the beauty of Miss Frost, if she were beautiful, or of the mental fascinations of Miss Frost, if she were accomplished. Yet her name and her black dress hold an enduring place in our remembrance. An equally impersonal boy, whose name has long since shaped itself unalterably into Mr. Maul's, is not to be dislodged from our brain. Retaining no vindictive feelings toward Malls, no feeling whatever indeed, we infer that neither he nor we can have loved Miss Frost. Our first impression of death and burial is associated with this formless pair. We all three nestled awfully in a corner one wintry day, when the wind was blowing shrill with Miss Frost's pinafore over our heads, and Miss Frost told us in a whisper about somebody being screwed down. 
it is the only distinct recollection we preserve of those impalpable creatures except a suspicion that the manners of master malls were susceptible of much improvement generally speaking we may observe that whenever we see a child intently occupied with its nose to the exclusion of all other subjects of interest our mind reverts in a flash to master malls but the school that was our school before the railroad came and overthrew it was quite another sort of place we were old enough to be put into Virgil when we went there, and to get prizes for a variety of polishing on which the rust had long accumulated. It was a school of some celebrity in its neighborhood, nobody could have said why, and we had the honor to attain and hold the eminent position of first boy. The master was supposed among us to know nothing, and one of the ushers was supposed to know everything. We are still inclined to think the first-name supposition perfectly correct. We have a general idea that its subject had been in the leather trade, and had bought us, meaning our school, of another proprietor who was immensely learned. Whether this belief had any real foundation we are not likely ever to know now. The only branches of education with which he showed the least acquaintance were ruling and corporally punishing he was always ruling ciphering books with a bloated mahogany ruler or smiting the palms of offenders with the same diabolical instrument or viciously drawing a pair of pantaloons tight with one of his large hands and caning the wearer with the other we have no doubt whatever that this occupation was the principal solace of his existence a profound respect for money pervaded our school, which was, of course, derived from its chief. We remember an idiotic, goggle-eyed boy with a big head and half-crowns without end who suddenly appeared as a parlor boarder and was rumored to have come by sea from some mysterious part of the earth where his parents rolled in gold. He was usually called Mr. by the chief and was said to feed in the parlor on steaks and gravy likewise to drink currant wine, and he openly stated that if rolls and coffee were ever denied him at breakfast, he would write home to that unknown part of the globe from which he had come, and cause himself to be recalled to the regions of gold. He was put into no form or class, but learnt alone, as little as he liked, and he liked very little. And there was a belief among us that this was because he was too wealthy to be taken down. His special treatment and our vague association of him with the sea and with storms and sharks and coral reefs occasioned the wildest legends to be circulated as his history. A tragedy in blank verse was written on the subject, if our memory does not deceive us, by the hand that now chronicles these recollections, in which his father figured as a pirate and was shot for a voluminous catalogue of atrocities first imparting to his wife the secret of the cave in which his wealth was stored, and from which his only son's half-crowns now issued. Dumbledon, the boy's name, was represented as yet unborn when his brave father met his fate, and the despair and grief of Mrs. Dumbledon at that calamity was movingly shadowed forth as having weakened the parlor-boarder's mind. This production was received with great favor, 
and was twice performed with closed doors in the dining-room but it got wind and was seized as libelous and brought the unlucky poet into severe affliction some two years afterwards all of a sudden one day dumbledon vanished it was whispered that the chief himself had taken him down to the docks and reshipped him for the spanish main but nothing certain was ever known about his disappearance at this hour we cannot thoroughly disconnect him from california our school was rather famous for mysterious pupils there was another a heavy young man with a large double-cased silver watch and a fat knife the handle of which was a perfect toolbox who unaccountably appeared one day at a special desk of his own erected close to that of the chief with whom he held familiar converse he lived in the parlour and went out for his walks and never took the least notice of us even of us the first boy unless to give us a deprecatory kick or grimly to take our hat off and throw it away when he encountered us out of doors which unpleasant ceremony he always performed as he passed not even condescending to stop for the purpose some of us believed that the classical attainments of this phenomena were terrific but that his penmanship and arithmetic were defective and he had come there to mend them others that he was going to set up a school and had paid the chief twenty-five pound down for leave to see our school at work the gloomier spirits even said that he was going to buy us against which contingency conspiracies were set on foot for a general defection and running away however he never did that after staying for a quarter during which period though closely observed he was never seen to do anything but make pens out of quills write small hand in a secret portfolio and punch the point of the sharpest blade in his knife into his desk all over it he too disappeared and his place knew him no more there was another boy a fair meek boy with a delicate complexion and rich curling hair who we found out or thought we found out we have no idea now and probably had none then on what grounds but it was confidently revealed from mouth to mouth was the son of a viscount who had deserted his lovely mother it was understood that if he had his rights he would be worth twenty thousand a year and that if his mother ever met his father she would shoot him with a silver pistol which she carried always loaded to the muzzle for that purpose he was a very suggestive topic so was a young mulatto who was always believed though very amiable to have a dagger about him somewhere but we think they were both outshone upon the whole by another boy who claimed to have been born on the twenty ninth of february and to have only one birthday in five years we suspect this to have been a fiction but he lived upon it all the time he was at our school the principal currency of our school was slate pencil it had some inexplainable value that was never ascertained nor reduced to a standard to have a great hoard of it was somehow to be rich we used to bestow it in charity and confer it as a precious boon upon our chosen friends when the holidays were coming contributions were solicited for certain boys whose relatives were in india and who were appealed for under the generic name of holiday stoppers appropriate marks of remembrance that should enliven and cheer them in their homeless state personally 
we always contributed these tokens of sympathy in the form of a slate-pencil, and always felt that it would be a comfort and a treasure to them. Our school was remarkable for white mice. Red poles, linnets, and even canaries were kept in desks, drawers, hat-boxes, and other strange refuges for birds, but white mice were the favorite stock. The boys trained the mice much better than the masters trained the boys. We recall one white mouse who lived in the cover of a Latin dictionary, who ran up ladders, drew Roman chariots, shouldered muskets, turned wheels, and even made a very creditable appearance on the stage as the dog of Montargis. He might have achieved greater things, but for having the misfortune to mistake his way in a triumphal procession to the capital, when he fell into a deep inkstand and was dyed black and drowned. The mice were the occasion of some most ingenious engineering in the construction of their houses and instruments of performance. The famous one belonged to a company of proprietors, some of whom have since made railroads, engines, and telegraphs. The chairman has erected mills and bridges in New Zealand. The usher at our school, who was considered to know everything, as opposed to the chief, who was considered to know nothing, was a bony, gentle-faced, clerical-looking young man in rusty black. It was whispered that he was sweet upon one of Maxby's sisters. Maxby lived close by and was a day-pupil, and further that he favored Maxby. As we remember, he taught Italian to Maxby's sisters on half-holidays. He once went to the play with them and wore a white waistcoat and a rose which was considered among us equivalent to a declaration. We were of the opinion on that occasion that to the last moment he expected Maxby's father to ask him to dinner at five o'clock, and therefore neglected his own dinner at half-past one and finally got none. We exaggerated in our imaginations the extent to which he punished Maxby's father's cold meat at supper and we agreed to believe that he was elevated with wine and water when he came home. But we all liked him, for he had a good knowledge of boys, and would have made it a much better school if he had had any more power. He was writing master, mathematical master, English master, made out the bills, mended the pens, and did all sorts of things. He divided the little boys with the Latin master, they were smuggled through their rudimentary books at odd times when there was nothing else to do, and he always called at parents' houses to inquire after sick boys, because he had gentlemanly manners. He was rather musical, and on some remote quarter-day had bought an old trombone, but a bit of it was lost, and it made the most extraordinary sounds when he sometimes tried to play it of an evening. His holidays never began on account of the bills until long after ours, but in the summer vacations he used to take pedestrian excursions with a knapsack, and at Christmas time he went to see his father at Chipping Norton, who, we all said, on no authority, was a dairy-fed pork-butcher. Poor fellow! He was very low all day on Maxby's sister's wedding day, and afterwards was thought to favor Maxby more than ever though he had been expected to spite him. He has been dead these twenty years, poor fellow. Our remembrance of our school presents the Latin master as a colorless, doubled-up, near-sighted man with a crutch, 
who was always cold and always putting onions into his ears for deafness, and always disclosing ends of flannel under all his garments, and almost always applying a ball of pocket handkerchief to some part of his face with a screwing action round and round. He was a very good scholar and took great pains where he saw intelligence and a desire to learn, otherwise perhaps not. Our memory presents him, unless teased into a passion, with as little energy as color, as having been worried and tormented into monotonous feebleness, as having had the best part of his life ground out of him in a mill of boys. We remember with terror how he fell asleep one sultry afternoon with the little smuggled class before him, and awoke not when the footstep of the chief fell heavy on the floor, how the chief aroused him in the midst of a dread silence and said, "'Mr. Blinkins, are you ill, sir?' How he blushingly replied, "'Sir, rather so.' How the chief retorted with severity, "'Mr. Blinkins, this is no place to be ill in,' which was very, very true, and walked back solemn as the ghost in Hamlet, until, catching a wandering eye, he called that boy for inattention and happily expressed his feelings toward the Latin master through the medium of a substitute. There was a fat little dancing master who used to come in a gig and taught the more advanced among us hornpipes, as an accomplishment in great social demand in after life. And there was a brisk little French master who used to come in the sunniest weather with a handleless umbrella, and to whom the chief was always polite, because, as we believed, if the chief offended him, he would instantly address the chief in French, and forever confound him before the boys with his inability to understand or reply. There was, besides, a serving-man whose name was Phil. Our retrospective glance presents Phil as a shipwrecked carpenter, cast away upon the desert island of a school, and carrying into practice an ingenious inkling of many trades. He mended whatever was broken, and made whatever was wanted. He was General Glazier, among other things, and mended all the broken windows, at the prime cost, as was darkly rumored among us, of nine pence, for every square charged three and six to parents. We had a high opinion of his mechanical genius, and generally held that the chief knew something bad of him and, on pain of divulgence, enforced Phil to be his bondsman. We particularly remember that Phil had a sovereign contempt for learning, which engenders in us a respect for his sagacity, as it implies his accurate observation of the relative positions of the chief and the ushers. He was an impenetrable man, who waited at table between whiles, and throughout the half kept the boxes in severe custody. He was morose, even to the chief, and never smiled, except at breaking up, when, in acknowledgment of the toast, "'Success to Phil! Hooray!' he would slowly carve a grin out of his wooden face, where it would remain until we were all gone. Nevertheless, one time, when we had the scarlet fever in the school, Phil nursed all the sick boys of his own accord, and was like a mother to them. There was another school not far off, and, of course, our school could have nothing to say to that school. 
it is mostly the way with schools whether of boys or men well the railway has swallowed up ours and the locomotives now run smoothly over its ashes so fades and languishes grows dim and dies all that this world is proud of and is not proud of too it had little reason to be proud of our school and has done much better since in that way and will do far better yet End Our of section seventeen printed pieces Charles Dickens two hundredth anniversary collection volume two by Charles Dickens Our School recording by Joyce Martin Speech The Royal Academy Dinner London May the second eighteen seventy This is a LibriVox recording all LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by David Lewis Richardson. Charles Dickens' 200th Anniversary Collection, Volume 2. Speech. The Royal Academy Dinner, London, May the 2nd, 1870. On the occasion of the second exhibition of the Royal Academy in their new galleries in Piccadilly, the President, Sir F. Grant, and the Council gave their usual inaugurative banquet, and a very distinguished company was present. The dinner took place in the large central room, and covers were laid for two hundred guests. The Prince of Wales acknowledged the toast of his health and that of the Princess, the duke of cambridge responded to the toast of the army mr childers to the navy lord elko to the volunteers mr motley to the prosperity of the united states mr gladstone to her majesty's ministers the archbishop of york to the guests and mr dickens to literature the last toast having been proposed in a highly eulogistic speech, Mr. Dickens responded, Mr. President, Your Royal Highnesses, my lords and gentlemen, I beg to acknowledge the toast with which you have done me the great honour of associating my name. I beg to acknowledge it on behalf of the Brotherhood of Literature. Present and absent, not forgetting an illustrious wanderer from the fold whose tardy return to it we all hail with delight and who now sits or lately did sit within a few chairs of or on your left hand i hope i may also claim to acknowledge the toast on behalf of the sisterhood of literature also although that better half of human nature to which mr gladstone rendered his graceful tribute is unworthily represented here in the present state of its rights and wrongs by the devouring monster man all the arts and many of the sciences bear witness that women even in their present oppressed condition can attain to quite as great distinction and can attain to quite as lofty names as men their emancipation as I am given to understand, drawing very near, there is no saying how soon they may push us from our stools at these tables. 
or how soon our better half of human nature standing in this place of mine may eloquently depreciate mankind addressing another better half of human nature sitting in the president's chair the literary visitors of the royal academy to-night desire me to congratulate their hosts on a very interesting exhibition in which risen excellence supremely asserts itself and from which promise of a brilliant succession in time to come is not wanting they naturally see with especial interest the writings and persons of great men historians philosophers poets and novelists vividly illustrated around them here and they hope that they may modestly claim to have rendered some little assistance towards the production of many of the pictures in this magnificent gallery for without the patient labours of some among them unhistoric history might have long survived in this place and but for the researchers and wandering of others among them the most preposterous countries the most impossible peoples and the absurdest superstitions manners and customs might have usurped the place of truth upon these walls nay there is no knowing sir francis grant what unlike portraits you yourself might have painted if you had been left with your sitters to idle pens unchecked reckless rumours and undenounced lying malevolence i cannot forbear before i resume my seat adverting to a sad theme the recent death of daniel maclise to which his royal highness the prince of wales made allusion and to which the president referred with the eloquence of genuine feeling since i first entered the public lists a very young man indeed it has been my constant fortune to number amongst my nearest and dearest friends members of the royal academy who have been its grace and pride they have so dropped from my side one by one that i already begin to feel like the spanish monk of whom wilkie tells who had grown to believe that the only realities around him were the pictures which he loved and that all the moving life he saw or ever had seen was a shadow and a dream for many years i was one of the two most intimate friends and most constant companions of the late mr maclise of his genius in his chosen art i will venture to say nothing here but of his prodigious fertility of mind and wonderful wealth of intellect i may confidently assert that they would have made him if he had been so minded at least as great a writer as he was a painter the gentlest and most modest of men the freshest as to his generous appreciation of young aspirants and the frankest and largest hearted as to his peers incapable of a sordid or ignoble thought gallantly sustaining the true dignity of his vocation without one grain of self-ambition wholesomely natural at the last as at the first in wit a man simplicity a child no artist of whatsoever denomination i make bold to say ever went to his rest leaving a golden memory more pure from dross or having devoted himself with a truer chivalry to the art goddess
whom he worshipped. These were the last public words of Charles Dickens. End of speech, the Royal Academy Dinner, London, May the 2nd, 1870. Recording by David Lewis Richardson, Lancashire, England. The Young Couple, from Sketches of Young Couples. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Christine G. Charles Dickens' 200th Anniversary, Collection, Volume 2. The Young Couple, from Sketches of Young Couples, by Charles Dickens. There is to be a wedding this morning, at the corner house in the terrace. The pastry-cook's people have been there half a dozen times already. All day yesterday there was a great stir and bustle, and they were up this morning as soon as it was light. Miss Emma Fielding is going to be married to young Mr. Harvey. Heaven alone can tell him what bright colours this marriage is painted upon the mind of the little housemaid at number six who has hardly slept a wink all night with thinking of it, and now stands on the unswept doorsteps, leaning upon her broom, and looking wistfully towards the enchanted house. Nothing short of omniscience can divine what visions of the baker, or the green grocer, or the smart and most insinuating butterman, are flitting across her mind. What thoughts of how she would dress on such an occasion, if she were a lady, of how she would dress if she were only a bride, of how cook would dress being bridesmaid conjointly with her sister in place at fulham and how the clergyman deeming them so many ladies would be quite humbled and respectful what daydreams of hope and happiness of life being one perpetual holiday with no master and no mistress to grant or withhold it of every sunday being a sunday out of pure freedom as to curls and ringlets and no obligation to hide fine heads of hair in caps. What picture of happiness, vast and immense to her, but utterly ridiculous to us, bewildered the brain of the little housemaid at number six, all called into existence by the wedding at the corner? We smile at such things, and so we should, though perhaps for a better reason than commonly present itself. It should be pleasant to us to know that there are notions of happiness so moderate and limited, since upon those who entertain them happiness and lightness of heart are very easily bestowed but the little housemaid is awakened from her reverie for forth from the door of the magical corner-house there runs towards her all fluttering in smart new dress and streaming ribbons her friend jane adams who comes all out of breath to redeem a solemn promise of taking her in under cover of the confusion to see the breakfast-table spread forth in state, and, sight of sights, her young mistress ready dressed for church. And there, in good truth, when they have stolen upstairs on tiptoe, and edged themselves in the chamber-door, there is Miss Emma, looking like the sweetest picture, in a white chip bonnet and orange flowers, and all other elegancies becoming a bride with the make, shape, and quality of every article of which the girl is perfectly familiar in one moment, and never forgets to her dying day. And there is Miss Emma's mamma in tears, and Miss Emma's papa comforting her, 
and saying how that of course she had been long looking forward to this, and how happy she ought to be. And there too is Miss Emma's sister, with her arms round her neck, and the other bridesmaid, all smiles and tears, quieting the children, who would cry more, but that they are so finely dressed, and yet sob for fear system Emma should be taken away. And it is all so affecting, that the two servant-girls cry more than anybody. And Jane Adams, sitting down upon the stairs, when they have crept away, declares that her legs tremble so that she would don't know what to do, and that she will say for Miss Emma that she never heard a hasty word from her, and that she does hope and pray she may be happy. But Jane soon comes round again, and then surely there never was anything like the breakfast-table, glittering with plate and china, and set out with flowers and sweets, and long-necked bottles, in the most sumptuous and dazzling manner. In the centre, too, is the mighty charm, the cake glistening with frosted sugar, and garnished beautifully. They agree that there ought to be a little cupid under one of the barley-sugar temples, or at least two hearts and an arrow, but, with this exception, there is nothing to wish for, and a table could not be handsomer. As they arrive at this conclusion, who should come in but Mr. John, to whom Jane says that it's only Anne from number six, and John says he knows, for he's often winked his eye down the area, which causes Anne to blush and look confused. She is going away, indeed, when Mr. John will have it that she must drink a glass of wine, and he says never mind it's being early in the morning, it won't hurt her, so they shut the door and pour out the wine, and Anne drinking Jane's health, and adding, "'And here's wishing you yours, Mr. John,' drinks it in a great many sips, Mr. John all the time making jokes appropriate to the occasion. At last Mr. John, who was waxed bolder by degrees, pleads the usage at weddings, and claims the privilege of a kiss, which he obtains after a great scuffle, and footsteps being now heard on the stairs, they disperse suddenly. By this time a carriage has driven up to convey the bride to church, and Anne of number six, prolonging the process of cleaning her door, has the satisfaction of beholding the bride and bridesmaids, and the papa and mamma hurry into the same and drive rapidly off. Nor is this all, for soon other carriages begin to arrive with a posse of company all beautifully dressed, at whom she could stand and gaze for ever. But having something else to do, is compelled to take one last long look and shut the street door. And now the company have gone down to breakfast, and tears have given place to smiles, for all the corks are out of the long-necked bottles, and their contents are disappearing rapidly. Miss Emma's papa is at the top of the table, Miss Emma's mamma at the bottom, and beside the latter are Miss Emma herself and her husband, admitted on all hands to be the handsomest and most interesting young couple ever known. All down both sides of the table, too, are various young ladies, beautiful to see, and various young gentlemen who seem to think so, and there, in a post of honour, is an unmarried aunt of Miss Emma's, reported to possess unheard-of riches, and to have expressed vast testamentary intentions respecting her favourite niece and new nephew. This lady has been very liberal and generous already, as the jewels worn by the bride abundantly testify, but that is nothing to what she means to do, or even to what she has done, for she put herself in close communication with the dressmaker three months ago, and prepared a wardrobe, with some articles worked by her own hands, fit for a princess. People may call her an old maid, 
and so she may be, but she is neither cross nor ugly for all that. On the contrary, she is very cheerful and pleasant-looking, and very kind and tender-hearted, which is no matter of surprise except to those who yield to popular prejudice without thinking why, and will never grow wiser and never know better. Of all the company, though, none are more pleasant to behold or better pleased with themselves than the two young children who, in honour of the day, have seats among the guests. Of these, one is a little fellow of six or eight years old, brother to the bride, and the other a girl of the same age, or something younger, whom he calls his wife. The real bride and bridegroom are not more devoted than they. He all love and attention, and she all blushes and fondness, toying with the little bouquet which he gave her this morning, and placing the scattered rose-leaves in her bosom with nature's own coquettishness. They have dreamt of each other in their quiet dreams, these children, and their little hearts have been nearly broken when the absent one has been dispraised in jest. When will there come in afterlife a passion so earnest, generous, and true as theirs? What, even in its gentlest realities, can have the grace and charm that hover round such fairy lovers? By this time the merriment and happiness of the feast have gained their height. Certain ominous looks begin to be exchanged between the bridesmaids, and somehow it gets whispered about that the carriage which is to take the young couple into the country has arrived. Such members of the party as are most disposed to prolong its enjoyments affect to consider this a false alarm, but it turns out too true, being speedily confirmed, first by the retirement of the bride and a select file of intimates who are to prepare her for the journey, and secondly by the withdrawal of the ladies generally. To this there ensues a particularly awkward pause, in which everybody essays to be factious, and nobody succeeds. At length the bridegroom makes a mysterious disappearance, in obedience to some equally mysterious signal, and the table is deserted. Now, for at least six weeks last past, it has been solemnly devised and settled that a young couple should go away in secret, but they no sooner appear without a door than the drawing-room windows are blocked up with ladies waving their handkerchiefs and kissing their hands, and the dining-room paints with gentlemen's faces beaming farewell in every queer variety of its expression. The hall and steps are crowded with servants in white favours, mixed up with particular friends and relations who have darted out to say good-bye, and foremost in the group are the tiny lovers arm-in-arm, arm, thinking, with fluttering hearts, what happiness it would be to dash away together in that gallant coach and never part again. The bride has barely time for one hurried glance at her old home. When the steps rattle, the door slams, the horses clatter on the pavement, and they have left it far away. Are not a woman's servants still remain clustered in the hall, whispering among themselves, and there, of course, is Anne from number six, who has made another escape in some plea or other, and been an admiring witness of the departure. There are two points on which Anne expatiates over and over again, without the smallest appearance of fatigue or intending to leave off. One is that she never see in all her life such a, oh, such a angel of a gentleman as Mr. Harvey, and the other that she can't tell how it is, but it don't seem a bit like a work-a-day, or a Sunday neither. It's all so unsettled and unregular. End of The Young Couple from Sketches of Young Couples Recording by Christine G. in Oslo, Norway The 18th of January, 2012
crime and education from miscellaneous papers this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit librivox.org recording by martin geeson charles dickens 200th anniversary collection volume 2 crime and education from miscellaneous papers by charles dickens i offer no apology for entreating the attention of the readers of the daily news to an effort which has been making for some three years and a half and which is making now to introduce among the most miserable and neglected outcasts in london some knowledge of the commonest principles of morality and religion to commence their recognition as immortal human creatures before the jail chaplain becomes their only schoolmaster to suggest to society that its duty to this wretched throng foredoomed to crime and punishment rightfully begins at some distance from the police office and that the careless maintenance from year to year in this the capital city of the world of a vast hopeless nursery of ignorance misery and vice a breeding-place for the hulks and jails is horrible to contemplate this attempt is being made in certain of the most obscure and squalid parts of the metropolis where rooms are opened at night for the gratuitous instruction of all comers children or adults under the title of ragged schools the name implies the purpose they who are too ragged wretched filthy and forlorn to enter any other place who could gain admission into no charity school and who would be driven away from any church door are invited to come in here and find some people not depraved willing to teach them something and show them some sympathy and stretch a hand out which is not the iron hand of law for their correction before i describe a visit of my own to a ragged school and urge the readers of this letter for god's sake to visit one themselves and think of it which is my main object let me say that i know the prisons of london well that i have visited the largest of them more times than i could count and that the children in them are enough to break the heart and hope of any man i have never taken a foreigner or a stranger of any kind to one of these establishments but i have seen him so moved at sight of the child offenders and so affected by the contemplation of their utter renouncement and desolation outside the prison walls that he has been as little able to disguise his emotion as if some great grief had suddenly burst upon him mr chesterton and lieutenant tracy than whom more intelligent and humane governors of prisons it would be hard if not impossible to find know perfectly well that these children pass and repass through the prisons all their lives 
that they are never taught that the first distinctions between right and wrong are from their cradles perfectly confounded and perverted in their minds that they come from untaught parents and will give birth to another untaught generation that in exact proportion to their natural abilities is the extent and scope of their depravity and that there is no escape or chance for them in any ordinary revolution of human affairs happily there are schools in these prisons now if any readers doubt how ignorant the children are let them visit those schools and see them at their tasks and hear how much they knew when they were sent there if they would know the produce of this seed let them see a class of men and boys together at their books as i have seen them in the house of correction for this county of middlesex and mark how painfully the full-grown felons toil at the very shape and form of letters their ignorance being so confirmed and solid the contrast of this labour in the men with the less blunted quickness of the boys the latent shame and sense of degradation struggling through their dull attempts at infant lessons and the universal eagerness to learn impress me in this passing retrospect more painfully than i can tell for the instruction and as a first step in the reformation of such unhappy beings the ragged schools were founded i was first attracted to the subject and indeed was first made conscious of their existence about two years ago or more by seeing an advertisement in the papers dated from west street saffron hill stating that a room had been opened and supported in that wretched neighbourhood for upwards of twelve months where religious instruction had been imparted to the poor and explaining in a few words what was meant by ragged schools as a generic term including then four or five similar places of instruction i wrote to the masters of this particular school to make some further inquiries and went myself soon afterwards it was a hot summer night and the air of field lane and saffron hill was not improved by such weather nor were the people in those streets very sober and honest company being unacquainted with the exact locality of the school i was fain to make some inquiries about it these were very jocosely received in general but everybody knew where it was and gave the right direction to it the prevailing idea among the loungers the greater part of them the very sweepings of the streets and station-houses seemed to be that the teachers were quixotic and the school upon the whole a lark but there was certainly a kind of rough respect for the intention and as i have said nobody denied the school or its whereabouts or refused assistance in directing to it 
it consisted at that time of either two or three i forget which miserable rooms upstairs in a miserable house in the best of these the pupils in the female school were being taught to read and write and though there were among the number many wretched creatures steeped in degradation to the lips they were tolerably quiet and listened with apparent earnestness and patience to their instructors the appearance of this room was sad and melancholy of course how could it be otherwise but on the whole encouraging the close low chamber at the back in which the boys were crowded was so foul and stifling as to be at first almost insupportable but its moral aspect was so far worse than its physical that this was soon forgotten huddled together on a bench about the room and shone out by some flaring candles stuck against the walls were a crowd of boys varying from mere infants to young men sellers of fruit herbs lucifer matches flints sleepers under the dry arches of bridges young thieves and beggars with nothing natural to youth about them with nothing frank ingenuous or pleasant in their faces low-browed vicious cunning wicked abandoned of all help but this speeding downward to destruction and unutterably ignorant this reader was one room as full as it could hold but these were only grains in sample of a multitude that are perpetually sifting through these schools in sample of a multitude who had within them once and perhaps have now the elements of men as good as you or i and maybe infinitely better in sample of a multitude among whose doomed and sinful ranks oh think of this and think of them the child of any man upon this earth however lofty his degree must as by destiny and fate be found if at its birth it were consigned to such an infancy and nurture as these fallen creatures had this was the class i saw at the ragged school they could not be trusted with books they could only be instructed orally they were difficult of reduction to anything like attention obedience or decent behaviour their benighted ignorance in reference to the deity or to any social duty how could they guess at any social duty being so discarded by all social teachers but the jailer and the hangman was terrible to see yet even here and among these something had been done already the ragged school was of recent date and very poor but he had inculcated some association with the name of the almighty which was not an oath and had taught them to look forward in a hymn they sang it to another life which would correct the miseries and woes of this 
the new exposition i found in this ragged school of the frightful neglect by the state of those whom it punishes so constantly and whom it might as easily and less expensively instruct and save together with the sight i had seen there in the heart of london haunted me and finally impelled me to an endeavour to bring these institutions under the notice of the government with some faint hope that the vastness of the question would supersede the theology of the schools and that the bench of bishops might adjust the latter question after some small grant had been conceded i made the attempt and have heard no more of the subject from that hour the perusal of an advertisement in yesterday's paper announcing a lecture on the ragged schools last night has led me into these remarks i might easily have given them another form but i address this letter to you in the hope that some few readers in whom i have awakened an interest as a writer of fiction may be by that means attracted to the subject who might otherwise unintentionally pass it over i have no desire to praise the system pursued in the ragged schools which is necessarily very imperfect if indeed there be one so far as i have any means of judging of what is taught there i should individually object to it as not being sufficiently secular and as presenting too many religious mysteries and difficulties to minds not sufficiently prepared for their reception but i should very imperfectly discharge in myself the duty i wish to urge and impress on others if i allowed any such doubt of mine to interfere with my appreciation of the efforts of these teachers or my true wish to promote them by any slight means in my power irritating topics of all kinds are equally far removed from my purpose and intention but i adjure those excellent persons who aid munificently in the building of new churches to think of these ragged schools to reflect whether some portion of their rich endowments might not be spared for such a purpose to contemplate calmly the necessity of beginning at the beginning to consider for themselves where the christian religion most needs and most suggests immediate help and illustration and not to decide on any theory or hearsay but to go themselves into the prisons and the ragged schools and form their own conclusions they will be shocked pained and repelled by much that they learn there but nothing they can learn will be one thousandth part so shocking painful and repulsive as the continuance for one year more of these things as they have been for too many years already anticipating that some of the more prominent facts connected with the history of the ragged schools may become known to the readers of the daily news 
through your account of the lecture in question i abstain though in possession of some such information from pursuing the question further at this time but if i should see occasion i will take leave to return to it End of Crime and Education From Miscellaneous Papers End of Charles Dickens' 200th Anniversary Collection Volume 2